Part 3 Out But Not Down Chapter 10 Finding Your Way In which the author explores the problem of not getting utterly lost even if one isn't any longer unthinkingly letting one's culture draw one's maps and plot one's course. I was raised to be an integrated cog in one very small, elite subset of the Christian community, purposely programmed to be unhappy in any other Christian group, required to cut off association with other Christians, required to declare exclusive allegiance to the one group. So, being booted from and moving beyond that culture has left me more or less cut off not only from it, but from all the other parts of the fragmented Christian community around us that I've been raised to shut out. There's connections that contaminate. There's things in this world that contaminate. Not only moral questions, but doctrinal questions contaminate. And ecclesiastical connections contaminate as well. I had been taught that the rest of Christendom was inferior and that we didn't want to be watered down or corrupted by those dubious ecclesiastical connections and their inferior truth. So now, I was inferior too and had been cut off to keep me from corrupting the special group I'd fallen from grace in. Today, no matter how much I try to connect to Christians outside of their churches, sometimes I feel like I'm getting nowhere really. And I know there are many, many Christians just like me. In fact, as I said before, I believe that Christians who are regular contented church attendees are in the minority. But how to find all the others? You can't really find a church that is actually attended by people who don't attend church. When church-going Christians hear my thoughts about all this, they generally decide that something is very wrong and that I need to change whatever it is because it's certainly me that screwed up and not how we do church Christianity nowadays. Either I need to go back to my church and work out whatever my problem is, or else I absolutely need to find a new church and show that I've moved on by really enjoying myself there, in a group, part of that flock. Group seems to be an unthinking, unexamined tenet of modern Christian thought. But what does moving on look like? I feel like I've moved on from all of our innumerable dead-on-their-feet conventional Sunday morning church systems. I don't think the answer to my conscience qualms about church is more or another church. I am as much a part of the church as any Christian, and I want to meet and talk with people from every corner of it. But still, I hear nothing but demands that I pledge allegiance to some church or other, or I don't get to talk because I'm still stuck in the past, it is felt, and I need to move on to more of the same. Many mistakenly believe that if I were offered membership back in my own church again, like that ever happens there, that I would leap at that chance. They think that I'm deluding myself and wasting my time, waiting around hoping fruitlessly for that to happen, and complaining when it doesn't. That's not it, though, at all. I must admit, to a failure to ever really simply answer what is, after all, a good question. What is my walk with the Lord? I can't seem to make Christians accept that I do walk with the Lord in any way they understand without it being part of a church thing. Even Harold says, When God works, he works through church groups. Harold sees church groups, even tiny ones, as what God builds Christians into to get work done. I've been part of a church culture, and I've been part of subgroups of it, 
And now I go around and visit and talk to people in all manner of groups and check out their stuff and see what's going on. But to the Christians I talk to, I'm not living Christian, not practicing, not following Christ, not obeying the Bible, because I'm not doing church at any one place on a weekly basis. The fact is, the Lord Jesus Christ saved me from church. I have gone after Christ, feeling God has demanded I kick over the altars of church Christianity and leave the ghettoized Christian lifestyle behind. This seems to be the main source of my problems in connecting with Christians. Everywhere I go, Christians seem to be deeply dissatisfied with church, but just as troubled by a Christian who's more or less not bothering with that concept at all. And they can talk about church to me all evening, but talking about Christ invariably turns into talking about church with them. I walked with Christ years ago, faithfully, but church was headed off in a different direction. So church and I parted ways. But do I continue to walk with him? Do I have him in my day? Can I talk about it? Can I be positive? Can I tell my story outright without needing to change people's names nor telling it in gaff, nor being negative? Can I just say what works and how it works? Can I do that at all? Thing is, what's seen as the negative seems to me to have been a terribly important part of it all. It was a process, and that stuff was part of it. As a physical being, I not only need to eat food, I need to excrete what my body does not use, and sometimes I even need to throw up stuff I should never have swallowed to begin with. One time, it was some chicken that had clearly gone past a vital date despite how it had been labeled puke volcano. I feel like I meet a lot of Christians who are toxic inside, but who are never letting any of that out or up. So they're just kind of sweating it, oozing it, leaking it, and it's not pretty. Stains any interaction they're part of. I think the writing, the satire, the thrashing it out and arguing about it have all actually been part of my growing, part of my moving on. Putting that thing to bed once and for all. Working out what exactly doesn't work. Meet the new church, same as the old church. Trying to make sure I won't get fooled again. I think this book is a form of moving on. But clearly, there is something missing and there should be a next step. So I'll write on, from this point, the job not done yet. Conscience Moving on for me involved doing some work on my conscience. Not so much some work that I did by myself, but some work that I did with Christ. I needed more elbow room in terms of my conscience, to be able to live, to be something other than a church puppet. The idea that we were to listen to our consciences was instilled in me early on. I still think that. I think that it is a fatal thing to simply ignore one's conscience, to stifle it, shut it down, and make decisions that go against it, like in a bad marriage where the wife gets shouted down when she tries to voice concerns. A good conscience is important. The Bible speaks of people whose consciences are cauterized with a hot iron so they just don't work anymore. Clearly, that's not ideal. But I suffered the opposite problem, a perpetually raw, torn-open conscience. I can feel guilty about the Smurfs in the way Jake felt guilty about Spongebob. I could be tempted to piously not eat hot dogs because they had pork in them or because beef and beef byproducts might include blood. 
I was far too terrified to go into a movie theater, pool hall, or video arcade. I never felt free to have any Christmas decorations or vote, all due to conscience. And that endlessly ringing conscience alarm wasn't working any better than an off one would. It just rang all the time. So there needed to be some growth in that area. Or so God seemed to feel. A bit about conscience. We were taught that man gained his conscience through theft, by stealing fruit when he did not yet possess the knowledge of good and evil. He'd been told not to eat of it, and he did anyway, and what followed has got to be the longest life lesson or teachable moment ever. Keeping this in mind, I can't help but notice that people in general are very divided as to whether A. We all possess a conscience that is wired into an absolute right and wrong standard of some kind, which some of us call God, or B. It's all relative, with us personally deciding what we think right and wrong are. Is conscience human or divine? That debate has gone on for ages. I think there's a lot of merit in both ideas, though, if one really considers each of them. It's one of those things where I think it is simple-minded to choose one or the other. People trying to work out what it means to be people, and what makes up a person, including conscience, is hard. And the Bible never expressly states that the knowledge of good and evil is the same thing as a conscience. We decided those dots should be connected all by ourselves, like we do with most of our doctrine. Maybe we're even right about it, too, though simple-minded in our understanding of what we're even connecting. So let's go ahead, as if maybe we are right. Something was amiss with my conscience that needed work in order for me to move forward in my life. In my 20s, it gradually became clear to me that I was being manipulated by having had my conscience trained by my culture, and there had been a clear agenda seen in what was trained into it. That culture-trained conscience was like an operating system or control panel, guaranteeing I operated according to cultural expectations or I suffered programmed-in guilt responses. It was a way to make sure I never got free in any real way. I was so well-programmed that cultural rules didn't need to be written down, and no one had to say a thing to make me feel guilt. It just happened automatically. In fact, tossed into new situations for which there was really no roadmap yet, my conscience could feel guilt about all manner of new, unfamiliar things before anything about their nature or meaning had even been ascertained. I didn't need church folk to make my new rules for me. My conscience produced its own new rules daily, all on its own, serving that brethren agenda. Like many, I had been coded to live out my days as a rule-knowing, rule-following, rule-generating machine. And I needed to grow beyond that if I was going to follow Jesus rather than meeting tradition and human ideas about piety. I increasingly learned that I could not follow both, and that legalism needed to stop at me. I needed to stop doing it to myself first, and then maybe even to others one day. This is, I think, the most upsetting thing about legalistic cultures like ours, that all of the needless, shame-enforced oppression and control freakishness which make our lives so difficult eventually become things we've been trained to do to ourselves and our kids and new converts. On the other hand, 
I've been troubled by how people who've done truly terrible things, for instance, stealing, hurting children, substance abuse, or acts of negligence causing real harm to others, can justify these acts to themselves by how they can feel very little guilt about them, how their consciences can somehow adjust so they're not terribly bothered anymore. I guess consciences aren't infallible. They can be turned up too high or down too low. They can be blind to all manner of things and hypersensitive to other ones. A conscience is no substitute for wisdom from and interaction with God. Once again, a conscience which is muted or more or less off isn't doing its job. But a conscience which feels guilt all the time for any number of stupid reasons isn't a working conscience either. And really, all that was behind most of my cultural training was a programmed feeling of guilt and shame whenever I was having a good time, had a flow experience, forgot myself, let go of control. Whenever I really started to enjoy myself, my conscience was like a safety valve or governor which shut me down so all that would stop. Pleasure couldn't be right, could it? Couldn't be okay? After all, it wasn't time for heaven yet. This is programming, encoding, indoctrination done with peer pressure stories and songs from a very young age it's very very deep and lasting in my 20s i had to come to terms with the idea that this raw inflamed conscience thing was itself part of a condition of sin was part of human carnal approaches to life was living according to the flesh sin and the flesh Sin is a state of flawed, dark, twisted, stunted weakness. Contrary to a myriad horror movies, sin isn't supernatural strength, power, and evil health, nor does it provide those. Strength, power, and health are good things, and good things come from God. Sin, even in people like Hitler or Charles Manson, is not conducive to sanity, health, and strength. It results in irrational, selfish, self-destructive, and cruel acts, which the Bible calls sins, plural, of course, but these are just the fruit of the tree. Sin, singular, is being effed up. Sins, then, are the effed up things we do next as a result. Psychiatrists, pastors, sponsors, and therapists the world over are trying to help people work through their sin, the rot at the root to make them take responsibility, to leave their fear behind, to kick addictions and destructive life patterns. Thing is, the crippling guilt, the shame, the self-loathing are almost always present in messed up people with ruined lives. And the guilt, shame, and self-loathing, contrary to what one would think, don't seem to be part of any workable solution to their problems. They often seem to be viewed as the entrance fee or price of admission for the sins, payable on a day-to-day -day basis if one wishes to continue to enjoy them. People seem to choose to use guilt and shame and self-loathing as enabling factors. So long as they feel them, they can feel they're kind of okay. At least they have shame, and they continue in the messed up stuff. They're paying for this ride they're on with the guilty feelings, and they're staying on it. This cycle is part of what is called the flesh, I believe. Weakness Knowing what things you don't think it's good to do, but not being able to stop. Lacking the strength, restraint, momentum, and resolve. 
vowing things and not being able to follow through. In the Bible, the flesh is a term used to describe typical, traditional, uninspired, common-sense, conventional wisdom, well-intentioned but misguided human attempts to deal with all those human problems described as sin in the Bible. The flesh tries to please God, but it's a tow truck trying to pull itself up out of the lake. It always fails, no matter how much one's fleshly willpower is engaged. If it had been sufficient, Jesus would never have had to come here. The Bible outlines what the result of putting one's faith in the flesh is, despite its best humanitarian, often religious, intentions. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I slowly came to realize that much of what I had been taught to see as virtue or piety or a careful Christian walk was simply put, the flesh trying to please God, human stuff, sin management systems, lifestyle makeovers, cosmetic stuff, painting the lifeboats on the Titanic while it is sinking. And the pious lifestyle I grew up under seemed to invariably bear fruit that is well described in the list I just gave. Certainly, the piety pageants, rivalries, envy, fightings, and fits of anger, the divisions, and, it must be admitted, the idolatry. We had an idol, set up on high, blocking our view of God. It was a Puritan, Pharisee, human thing made out of our own doctrine, rules, clean-cut fashions, worship-style preferences, and entertainment sacrifices. Mainly, it was about our fleshly concept of what we felt was a Christian image, testimony, and reputation. And we worshipped it daily. We were led around by crippling fear of damaging that image. If there was a way God wanted me to be, a life he intended me to live, if he'd built potential into me and expected to see it pay off, I needed something more than that human stuff, something that would pull me out of that fleshly cycle of using nothing more than our human religious efforts to try to be less angry, closed, cold, nasty, competitive, envious, strife-filled, fighting folks. Because it wasn't working. We had those works of the flesh among us in spades and were relatively complacent, unrepentant, clueless, and helpless about all of it. My culture had set itself up to prevent a Christian having a right to make up his or her own mind about what he or she thought Christ wanted. It needed more control than simply pointing people to Christ would have offered. A lot more control. Now this was a very delicate operation, this unhitching my conscience from my culture and opening it up to God's recalibration. I know many who just as soon as their having fun is shameful process started to be dialed down, went completely off the rails and did nothing but have fun. So much fun, they were miserable, became hedonists and addicts, leaped wholeheartedly into serving and producing those other works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sorcery, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The very works of the flesh our culture had been trying to stamp out using peer pressure, indoctrination, and shame, rather than the other works of the flesh that our culture generally overlooked. Not only overlooked, but went so far as to officially demand support for their formally enacting one of the things on that list. Divisions. But the young were after the fun works of the flesh, not divisions. Carol from New Zealand says, 
I'm not sure that throwing legalistic church culture overboard makes any more of a mess of one's life than hypocritically hanging on to it for grim death. I know of a couple of brethren youngsters who chucked a lot of stuff overboard and did things like getting pregnant to multiple different men, smoking, publicly dissing the brethren, who then respectively returned to the brethren. I'm not sure that they were repentant prodigals, just more disappointed with how hard it was to live in the outside world without family and taking responsibility for one's actions. That rebel path wasn't what I wanted. I wanted growth, development, and real lasting change, not just to kick against the pricks who'd made the rules and be sweary about them, only to later bow down before them to get let back in. So I took things really slowly. I knew that I had to wait until my conscience cut up and grew up. To do otherwise would have shredded me up inside. So even though right from my first year of university, I did not believe that drinking a beer would have been wrong for me, nor was I concerned that anything bad would happen if I did, still, the indoctrination was hanging on. I felt funny about it. So I took it easy. Didn't jump off the deep end. Gradually waited while those dead old oak leaves from previous seasons fell off and new buds took their place. Waited for Jesus to do his work in me. Waited for inner freedom. Some of our guys became alcoholics, though, chip-carrying ones, or ones who will no more go to an AA meeting nowadays than they will go to a Brethren Bible meeting. Some of us are in jail right now. Some of us are dead. But some of us are free. Because not everyone went off the rails, of course. Anne writes, I think I've been pretty damned repressed and cautious. Even if it doesn't look that way from the outside, I'm still trying to get free. I haven't watched too many others in their escape from the meetings. Most left and joined regular churches. My brother smokes weed and is into sports. I don't think he crashed and burned. I haven't seen people make a mess of their lives. The hardest thing is the social isolation of not having that social hive to be a part of. Not knowing where to get that cozy feeling of belonging again. Was it worth it? Just to break loose from my culture and get my heart free to follow Jesus, given what was at risk and what I had to sacrifice? I believe so, but I really don't think it was up to me. I think God was in my growth, and it was simply going to happen, whether it was politically and socially convenient for me, trying to get along in my culture, or not. I think a dandelion is going to push its way up through that crack in the sidewalk, because God built that into it. It seeks light. So it was either going to be about me living a life that knew and wished to please my culture, or one that actually knew and pleased God. One of those was easier in the short term, but had no real life in it. The other was harder than anything I could imagine, and would take the rest of my life to live out. My culture was a human thing, fleshly, a God replacement. By contrast, God himself is above all. God has answers that the human stuff can't aspire to, and God is a rewarder of them that seek him out. So if you go looking for him outside the camp, you're going to soon enough find him looking for you too. Did I have all the answers and know better than my culture? Of course not. I just knew that my culture wasn't God, and that it was in my way while I sought him. So I repented of it, fought the urge to make a new, better list of rules, fought the temptation to start a new, better Christian group, kicked over my father's altars and high places, the ones I'd been taught to set up inside myself, and I got kicked out of my culture as a result. I grew up with the Bible, 
and with some people who are in many ways quite careful about each other, so my conscience has retained some basics. But a whole lot of the extremes of conscience had to be grown beyond, the ones which turned me into our legalistic version of a clockwork orange, an inhuman thing programmed to respond to joy as a danger sign, interpreting any form of thriving as dangerous and suspect. And that's what I'm still doing, growing past it all. And I'm not finished. Divine Standards for Treatment of Others I think growth for me involved not tossing the cultural stuff out carelessly, not tossing out all of it, certainly, just not buying it as a complete package anymore, opening the package and having a look at exactly what was in it and what wasn't and why, being open to the very real possibility that every little bit of it needed to work and be good or those non-working little bits might need to go. God held me, not my culture, responsible for what kind of life I lived and how I treated others, so I couldn't blame my culture for my own inability to act better than I did. If I met a guy playing music in a bar, and he was a good guy, if my brethren conscience told me that I ought to preach at him, or feel better than him because I was a Christian, or that it was okay to act as if his unchristian ideas and lifestyle were entirely without merit— then that needed work. I needed to be more like Jesus. I needed to be able to connect, not just correct. I needed to be able to disagree in an open way instead of closing off and walking away. Christianity needed to inspire me to connect in new ways to all kinds of other human beings. That's a love thing. Instead of providing an excuse for me to not even try to connect. And that's not... In fact, my experience with artists and musicians and good old boys hanging out casually in quiet little village pubs showed me that my conscience needed to step it up a notch in terms of run-of-the-mill human things like openness, honesty, humility, decency, candor, integrity, warmth, and compassion. If I was to attain the standards of, say, those in a bar, that is. So there had to be no more claiming my standards and practices were better just because they were allegedly Christian, when clearly they sucked. My church culture, locally anyway, definitely had lower standards for these social human things than I saw in other local communities that were not claiming to be Christian. Melody writes, Even today, when our church members get together, they tend to speak very negatively about certain groups of people, gays in particular. I always want to ask, what if you had the chance to tell a gay man about your relationship with Jesus? Would you say those things to the gay man's face? It's disgusting. They also like to tell racist jokes and bluster about how we need to kill all the radical Islamists, which they say all Muslims are. In dealing with worldly folk with higher standards as to social decency and kindness, what I found was that higher standards can rub off on one. So I tried to make that happen tried to learn the virtues of the more socially adept worldlies by example, and I was prayerful about it, and despite my upbringing, maybe even a bit humble. I know I'm not the only one who found it a giant, joyful, freeing revelation to stop seeing the people in the world as all messed up by sin and allied with evil in ways that we supposedly weren't. Once I learned to look past the tattoos, swearing, dirty jokes, smoking, alcohol, and cards of the rank unbelievers, I started to see real people, just like me, only with more life experiences and observations than I'd had time to put together. 
Carol reports something similar as to meeting others outside the one right place and finding good in them and trying to be good to them. The dawning of that reality was one of the reasons that allowed me to leave. So freeing, humbling and exciting an idea to come to grips with about the outside world. Jesus might actually be out there instead of only in here. In my teens, I'd felt like the only real interaction I should properly be having with worldly people was to try to get them to come out to meeting. It was something to meet them in their own natural habitat, being themselves, rather than to have them meet me in mine, not being me, not knowing who I was, but hiding it from Christians anyway. I feel like my conscience was, and is, always being tuned up. To begin with, I found that God was perhaps less concerned about my going to the movies than he was about my being solitary, cold, pious, and nasty at meeting and elsewhere. And I found that dutifully abstaining from all of that church-condemned stuff was a fleshly human effort, which therefore fed the closed, prideful flesh. That piety was making me demonstrate more of the works of the flesh rather than less. Legalism, I came to realize, made me feel entitled to be arrogant and closed and cold, made me dismissive of more and more people, Christians included, made me feel entitled to unthinkingly correct anyone and anything all day long and not do much else, made me selfish and want to protect my reputation for top-notch piety, made me want to project advertise and perpetuate that reputation above all things, made me less than useless to other people, manifestly unhelpful, made me status-focused, made me a disciple of the Pharisees like Saul of Tarsus, and not a disciple of Jesus at all. Louisa says the same thing about herself. When I left the meeting, the meeting followed me as it was inside of me. The sins of the meeting are my own sins. I left with a Ph.D. in judgmentalism. People still often tell me it's so sad that I haven't moved on from worrying about the flaws of others. What really keeps me navel-gazing and self-judging is a daily awareness of my all-too-present flaws and where they're coming from. It's an undeniable fact that my formative years formed me. No matter how much I know I really hated how people treated me back then, I have absolutely been formed into a person who will sometimes unthinkingly act just the same way to others. We are caca cookies cut out with the same cookie cutter, many of us. So I want to lose the blinkered Pharisee conscience and develop a capacity to recognize the Pharisee attitude and spirit showing itself in my heart and in my day and judge it, see it clearly for what it is, smell it in my interactions, look to God for something better. The fleshly church efforts come from a very deep place in there. It all appeals to the flesh, to everything human and flawed in me, to the part of me that's afraid Christ doesn't or won't bother to really work, to the part of me that needs to grab the wheel. That Pharisee-trained conscience and those ancient human ideas about repeatedly vowing renewed acts of piety were actually what we Christians were using to try to be more Christian. Ironic. Time for an upgrade. Time to let Christ into things. Upgrade. Today I can see how much my conscience has to smarten up a bit about all that fleshly stuff. It really has blind spots, mostly about how to treat people. 
seeing as normal what were in retrospect pretty horrible things that I saw all the time growing up. Blind spots as to our ability to love like Christians. Blind spots we justified because of our supposed focus on scriptural light instead. Correctness. Doctrine. But a rush of guilt or shame doesn't make one act better or even do much of a job of keeping one from acting badly. What needs to happen is one needs to learn to see more, to see higher, broader, and more deeply, to see both what's not working and not good, and also what would work and be better. And we have an easier time doing this when we see it going on around us. We learn best by example and by doing. We learn worst by being shamed and resolving to do better without really knowing how, without seeing anyone else knowing either. I'd learned about as much as I was going to socially from people in my own brethren culture. And I found I had an awful lot to learn when I tried to be a good friend to people who weren't brethren, people who wanted and needed me. It was hard at first, and most of my brethren friends were little help too busy being brethren, to talk to someone who ate with publicans and sinners, or even open brethren. Others of my brethren friends, by contrast, became shrill, ham-fisted caricatures of worldly, unchurched hedonism, going into bars and acting how they thought people in bars acted, but getting it all very wrong, standing out, being jerks, not realizing that everywhere there are protocols, and just throwing away your own cultural protocols doesn't mean you're now ready to move smoothly in, say, the culture of a rock band, a blind date, a committee, an art exhibition, or something like that, or even a pub in a small town. No matter the setting, there are always conventions to help people connect, and just claiming to have better standards doesn't make you able to connect and excuse you from meeting people where they are and talking to them more or less how they'll put up with being spoken to. I can't tell you how many brethren people had had enough and left our group to seek out a more conventional church only to act as brethren as one could imagine in that church, starting to control freak and shame and taint everyone and everything in there. They'd hated people pharisee them at meeting, but first chance they got, they put that hat on themselves and never took it off again. We need help to stop acting legalistic to stop needing to correct and control everything around us. We need examples of how Christians can be more like Christ and less like Pharisees. We need time to work it all out. We need the patience and forbearance of others. But we had so much shame and so many rules that many of us really did just toss the rules and think we were good to go without learning much of anything. We had so much to learn. We still do. Following my own will... I had a very hard time, especially at first, with the idea of going out and getting good stuff for myself and mine. We Plymouth Brethren lived a pretty weird life, most would say. Our church culture was full of contradictions and control and numerous odd sacrifices, and so in most ways we were all extremely passive. In fact, many of us helped enforce passivity as the only way of life that we really accepted as normal in our group. We lived quite oddly. And why were we living this way, did we say? We passively said we were passively just seeking to do the Lord's will. That's what we said we were doing, and why we said we were doing it. It was, as I've said before, presented as a clear dichotomy. You could either actively do your own will, 
Or you could passively do little and call that the Lord's will. The Lord's will always and only involve not doing yours, and it always involves sacrifice. John Nelson Darby, a man who didn't like how the Anglican Church did things any more than he liked short, simple sentences, so broke away from that church while recovering from hitting his head on a door jam while falling off a horse while dutifully making his rounds as an Anglican curate, and in thus doing became the de facto leader worldwide of what became known as the Brethren Movement, running everything precisely how he saw fit, causing the First Brethren Division, when a man named Newton disagreed with him as to doctrine, wrote, Liberty of will is just slavery to the devil. Darby wrote this about a century before George Orwell ironically used the phrase freedom is slavery in the book 1984, along with 2 plus 2 equals 5. I'd always been taught that no matter how spiritual you became, no matter how infused with God as Father, Son, and Holy Bible you became, you'd never want to do what he wanted you to. Not really. No, you'd want to do your own will, which was evil continually, not redeemable. So, you just learn to say no to your heart's desires, and to claim that as to most of what you and your church did, well, you are merely obeying God in so doing. People who shun me to this day tell me they don't want to do it, but need to obey the Lord and bow to assembly decisions. Not their whims, but whims be done. Kind of an anti-growth theology. I think it involved the idea that God didn't really make us better. He simply stopped planning on sending us to hell. And then, when we went to heaven, he'd cut out of us our capacity to want things, along with our tear ducts, and those problems would be over. Kind of like being lobotomized. While your average non-church kid was being asked, What do you want to do with your life? Or, Which one do you want? We were being taught never to think like that and to seek what God wanted instead. It was supposed to be that simple, like he was going to let us kids know in advance, like all we had to do was follow the script he'd promised to give us, the map of our future. It was a map of Africa. So those of us trying to leave behind our brethren culture a bit had to learn to start to trust God with our hopes and dreams. Nowadays, Ruth is learning to trust him with her own actual hopes and dreams, to, as the scripture puts it, give her the desires of her heart. She says, I trust God with one dream, hope, and aspiration at a time. I de-double dare him to take care of them for me, to guide me in regard to them, and to bring them to fruition. So far, he has answered so many prayers, made so many dreams come true, shattered only the hopes that in retrospect would not have been the best thing for me, and guided me in so many almost tangible ways that I feel quite foolish to not trust him with stuff. I have come a long way since my teens when I was sure I was a bad Christian because I did not feel called to darkest Africa. I felt validated when I read Jane Eyre as a young girl, the part regarding her decision whether or not to serve as a missionary in India. Now I believe that God has plenty of work for ordinary people right at home, and that work doesn't always look like passing out gospel tracts, witnessing to every stranger you meet, and preaching on the street corner. I've already mentioned Bill's comment about how Christians do whatever they want and then say God told them to do it. Well, many lived like this. Others really convinced themselves that whatever they did, if it worked out well, must have been the Lord's will as he'd blessed them in it, if it hadn't gone horribly awry. After all, if it hadn't been his will, but ours instead, he'd have cursed it, right? It was pretty simple in theory. So I frequently refused to act 
until God let me know what he wanted. I would resolve to wait until he made his heart known, and only then would I act. God would make all of my life decisions for me. I didn't need to worry about that. Everyone agreed this was absolutely the thing to do. I agreed that it was, too. Thing is, he'd never agreed to work like that himself. And he made it pretty clear to me that he flat-out refused to work that way with me. To begin with, it tortured me. I was paralyzed and afraid to act, afraid to decide or choose anything. How could I learn the Lord's will so I could just do it in simple obedience to it? In the Bible, people heard a voice. This would have terrified me, but I kind of wanted it too. You see, I didn't want the pressure of having to figure things out, know my own heart, use what wisdom I had, ask God for more wisdom, make a decision based on the best information I had, using the best judgment I had, and then live with the consequences even if I'd made a mistake. Turns out, God expected me to do just that, exactly like that. God wasn't exactly the divine watchmaker, but there was an instructive story laid out for me in the Bible which seemed to apply more to my life than a voice from heaven telling me what kind of wood, shittim, and how many cubits, ten times thirty in a span. The story, told in the Gospels in a couple of different versions, for instance in Matthew 25 verses 14 through 29, involves a nobleman who gives his three servants money, the KJV calls the unit of currency talents, for them to invest. Each servant gets a different number of talents, perhaps because of their differing levels of financial expertise. And the nobleman leaves them to do as they see fit. He goes away on a journey for a long time. When he comes back, he wants to see how they've done in his absence following their best judgment. He'd already shown he knew who had the best judgment of the three, but he'd still given the one clueless guy a talent to invest so he could learn. The first two each managed to double the investment and gave all the money to the nobleman when he got back. In return, he put them in positions of greater responsibility and importance and invited them to enter into his joy. But the third servant had a different situation. He knew that the nobleman expected results. He was afraid. So he dug a hole, hid the money, and then dug it up and gave it back to him upon his return, having lost not a coin of it. The nobleman was furious, told him off for not even bothering to keep it safe in a bank where it would have collected interest, and took the money from him and gave it to the higher earner of the other two, and then had the man who'd not used his talent duly cast into outer darkness. A cautious, non-committal path was not okay with this boss. Now, if I was honest... I realized that I'd been given potential, life, mind, talents, and was going to try to refuse to develop, let alone follow, sound judgment. I just wanted to simply obey, not take risks, not get into trouble. And really important decisions were hard. Often, it turned out, they were hard because there was merit in deciding either way. When there was a decision to be made, and one way was likely to work out, and the other one not... I called those easy decisions. Hard ones were different. Even decisions like, should I get a Radio Shack TRS-80 color computer 2, a Coleco Atom, an Apple IIe, or a Commodore 64, didn't seem to be ones that God was going to help with, though they mattered very much to me. He actually really seemed to expect me to learn all I could, talk to some people, figure things out, follow the best judgment I had, and then be willing to live with the results. 
Even if I made a poor decision, he seemed very okay with all that, particularly with unfortunate decisions. Helped me out after things had gone wrong far more than he had when I was trying to make decisions to begin with. He seemed to insist upon the training wheels coming off and my taking steps without holding on to him. He wanted to be right beside me, but not be used as a crutch, nor as heroin. Not that I made enough poor decisions to really enjoy how much God enjoys helping us make lemonade of our lemons. Mostly, I avoided decisions if I could, by doing the same thing the same way every time, avoiding change, avoiding responsibility, maintaining deniability and a non-committal stance. This approach consistently annoyed and still annoys him if I do it, I think. One of the first times I met my friend Mark, I asked him how exactly he thought one found the Lord's will so one could do it and be in it and live it. Mark just tossed out, I don't believe in the Lord's will, back over his shoulder while going into a narrow stairwell to climb down a few floors without using the stairs by pressing hands and feet out against the side walls and generally being Spider-Man. Mark often speaks for effect and to make you think rather than to express the entire complexity of an opinion of his. And this made me think, all right, how workable was the idea of waiting to know the Lord's will before acting? Did the Lord expect us to make decisions using our best judgment? There were verses one could quote to argue either side of that one, certainly. But something about how the old folks were presenting the Lord's will concept seemed a bit off. They connected it to the idea that God has a plan for us, a path, which we needed to let him guide us along every step of the way, like my GPS plotting a route to Boston. These are, I believe, called sat-navs in Europe, thing that uses satellites to make you not need to learn how to fold a roadmap. My GPS is pretty good. Besides depicting my car on screen as the general lead from the Dukes of Hazard or the Batmobile, a Dalek, the TARDIS, or an X-Wing, depending on my mood, and speaking in a female voice with a British accent, it has another cool feature. If I make a mistake while driving, it figures out, on the fly, how to adjust the route so I still end up in Boston, without needing to drive all the way back to the place where I first messed up once I am totally lost. It just figures out where I've gotten to, and how to still get where I'm heading, though the journey is now different in terms of what are now appropriate turns, and perhaps in terms of expected time frame as well. The planned path changes to correct for my errors. It seems to me that in some people's minds, God wasn't as smart, or as helpful anyway, as my GPS is. I asked and was repeatedly told that should I get things wrong one time in following the Lord's carefully laid out plan for me, that I would certainly have to return back to the beginning and start all over again repenting in dust and ashes. But there are many Bible stories that kind of make the point that once you mess up, there's no going back, no mulligans. Well, to be honest, mostly they present the idea that once people mess up properly, they are just screwed. That's it for many of them. Esau, Cain, Saul, Ananias, and Sapphira. And in my own experience, things don't really work that way in my dealings with life and God. The whole, you need to go back and start all over again thing. Some things you go through are going to last, will be things that aren't going to be undone. House burned down, ruined relationship, totaled cars, criminal record, addiction, adultery, injury to others, pregnancy. No undoing those. 
And in reality, the God I tend to encounter while I'm living my life seems more than comfortable rolling with those choices, whatever they are. The game seems to be to try. A lot gets worked out on the fly. Obeying sounds good. So why not obey God when he clearly wants me to develop and follow sound judgment based on experience, listening to others, and looking to honor him given what's in the Bible? Why try to refuse to do that? Why bury potential in the ground and wait for him to come back so we can hand him our talent, our life, our time, pretty much unused but a bit gritty and damp just because he wouldn't give us stone tablets or the address and phone number of the girl, job, or house? Why not do what he wants us to, which is figure some of it out on our own? Professionals call this stumbling through and fumbling through. They see it as necessary to the process of getting through at all. When I was getting my master's degree so I could be a teacher, one stony-faced professor made us read her favorite book and then discussed it endlessly in a quiet, unbroken monotone. It was The Reflective Practitioner by Donald Schoen. One point which she hammered home repeatedly was that no matter the discipline or profession, no matter how educated and prepared a professional is, one thing they all still have to do on pretty much a daily basis is work things out on the fly. This is certainly a part of teaching. It is definitely a part of life. Things aren't almost ever going to be as we expect, even if God had spoken to us about it all in an actual voice beforehand. We still find ourselves thrown for a loop and needing to work out what to do because things aren't usually what we thought at all. In my experience, God seems to make sure of this. In my life anyway, he wasn't content with me simply obeying. He wanted initiative, creativity, and inspiration. About our trained passivity, Anne writes, I feel like this is a really big, important topic. It's about not engaging with life in a way. I truly have great regret over the many experiences I longed for and didn't have, even if they might have been mistakes. You can move on much faster if you try something and find out it doesn't work rather than just longing for it, disguised as praying about it. I think it's a crime that I just spent years of my life hoping for my life to begin at some point, but waiting for some sort of external permission to get started. It took me most of the way through my 20s to even start living my own life for God. When it came down to it, I wasn't apt to disobey, should I feel there was a clear scriptural principle or something I'd learned to expect from him personally in my dealings with him. But I didn't want to have to make my own decisions either, for fear of screwing up. I was quite troubled when it turned out that God flat out refused to make my life decisions for me. He wanted me to show some passion, some initiative, some resourcefulness and commitment, some courage even. He wanted me to take some accountability for being actively successful. He was like my dad letting go when I was learning how to walk, ride a bike, or swim. God does let go, so he can learn and grow, and he does let us fall. I've skinned me a knee or two. The life that God gives has blood and pain and hurt feelings in it, and he refuses to fix that. But I was raised to fear more than anything else getting caught messing up by church people, by my parents as representatives of that culture. I feared my church more than anything, but did not really fear God. Certainly not as much, and not as a separate person from it. That has changed. Now I fear God and do not fear my birth culture. I don't just fear screwing up and God knowing. 
I feel how out of control and unaware I am of so many things. God is in the blackness and cold of deep space. He is in the unimaginable heat at the heart of the sun. He is gravity and molecules and light and sound. Have you ever lay on your back and looked up at the night sky and suddenly it didn't look like a pretty canopy stretched overhead anymore? Suddenly it was something so huge you wanted to think of it as a pretty canopy to even deal with it? Have you ever felt like you could fall into the vastness of it and tumble screaming forever? Have you ever felt how beyond you birth and death really are? Felt yourself aging? Felt yourself healing from injury? Felt how much of that simply isn't you and isn't anything you can even influence much? Got a glimpse of how ancient everything but you is? Suddenly God's not in his box anymore. He's not in his room. He's not just inside the Bible. He's the source of everything we are part of, of everything else, of things we can't imagine, and of us too. When you encounter God, really God, no one has to quote verses at you and scold you to always remember to fear the Lord. You know fear. It's almost all you can know. Things aren't adequately explained by your church or textbook. You need to never forget his scope. Yet figure out that he loves you, is creating good, and has more grace and mercy than anyone else ever. And you will need and be shattered over and over again by that grace until it becomes as mundane and reliable as gravity. Coming to Terms with Grace I hesitate to even try to write about this. I know so little about it. I'm going to rewind back to where I came from in order to try to make sense of where I'm going to. Because grace is really important. And at some point, if you want something of value, you have to switch gears from passively sitting and taking in other people's understanding of humanity, God and the scriptures, and you have to actively engage the question yourself, and not just for an hour on Sundays. Is grace, God giving success to us when we don't deserve or earn good stuff, just for after this life, or is it for this life too? Is it just a backup thing for when we screw up living a good life, or is it the main thing? How far are we willing to take grace? How much do we insist upon doing ourselves? All good questions. Problem is, I wasn't raised knowing a thing relating to the topic. Of course, I was always taught that we weren't going to go to hell if we trusted in Jesus, and that this was God's grace, not sending us to hell after all. Like Mr. Hayhoe was so gracious, because when people asked him stupid questions or dared disagree with them, he didn't even yell at them. He was just coldly, uncomprehendingly, graciously closed to any ideas but his own. Hell isn't a terribly pressing thought to a child, most days anyway. Heaven either. A child feels like he has positively forever to live. And even math class is going to subjectively take forever. I only worried about hell if adults preached about it a lot. But what about Tuesday? What about God's role in Tuesday? How did I get him on my side with what I was going to do before supper or after school? We were, in our teaching at least, pretty clear on the idea that we weren't saved from hell through our own efforts. It was a matter of grace. Grace was defined as the unmerited favor of God. Getting something good you didn't deserve, we were told. Being given success, safety, and other good things, though we hadn't, couldn't, do anything to become someone who had earned them. We were really clear on all of that in our heads. 
But when it came to, was God angry with me and will God help me? There was a sudden shift. By example, anyway, and even sometimes by word, we were taught that God would only bless us if we kept from doing the fun things. We sacrificed pleasure to earn our blessing. We earned it. We bought it. And the wages of this sacrifice were a lack of trouble in our lives. Our concept of blessing generally went no higher than a lack of trouble. I don't even remember how long I had to live before I tripped over the phrase, saved by grace, blessed by works. But it made me realize that there was something very contradictory about how we were being taught, made me consider grace anew. We were taught very clearly that our good works and our religious efforts could not get us into heaven nor win God's favor. They were what scripture called the flesh. They were as filthy rags. Fine. And we didn't really do good works anyway. We did try to send people to Africa to do them, though. Mostly they handed out pamphlets there to Baptists and Anglicans on their way to the office. But most of us did not engage in any feeding the widows and fatherless of the world, certainly, if they weren't in our actual assembly. No helping people with emotional problems, even if they were in our actual assembly. None of that. But we certainly tried to do good in our own way by avoiding doing bad things. Most things were thought bad, so we didn't do most things. That black and white thinking came into play again. If you pleased God, were a good testimony, and sacrificed your opportunities for pleasure, he would always, every time, just have to bless you, would be forced to give you peace and quiet. You could bank on it. That's why you did it to begin with. And if you displeased God, indulged in pleasure, did what you wanted instead of what he wanted, following your own will instead of his, then you would definitely not be blessed. God would punish you in your life every time. Well, our wording was that he would speak to you. He would remove the blessing, which is kind of how cursing works if you think about it. Melody, from a brethren group indistinguishable from my own, writes... The God I grew up with was the God of wrath, a mean Old Testament father just waiting to smite you for any kind of wrongdoing. He was capricious, unpredictable. I met the God of grace during a divorce support group, and I learned that he's actually loving, forgiving, and will always take me back no matter how many times I ignore him. Pleasure was not the enemy in my growing up that it was in others. I guess at worst... Doing enjoyable things was a waste of time, time that could be better spent witnessing or reading one's Bible. Ruth, from my brethren group, writes, I don't truly, on a gut level, get grace. I don't get giving it, and I don't get receiving it. Thankfully, I am in a marriage where I have not been given the option of not growing in this area. I've had to. I don't feel like I have any right to screw up or be human and flawed, because I know better. At one time, the teaching was voiced in my assembly that it is possible and expected of us that we live a sinless life, and that there is no excuse and no mercy for sin and error after salvation, because we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. That's pretty damning stuff. Hard to move past. Nearly impossible to forgive oneself or hope to be forgiven. Jake, from a mainstream evangelical upbringing, writes, The gospel is such a sweet deal and so hard to believe that sometimes the only way people can get on board is if they draft up a new contract instead of the one God offered, creating one in which their actions contribute to their salvation and God blessing their lives. Sin management and religious performance is strategically trying to need Jesus as little as possible. That all rings very true to me as well. 
Needless to say, this new, odd view of grace and how God works is something I've spent my adult life wrestling with, with very indifferent success. My first impulse is always to expect success when I work hard and make sacrifices, like then it's owed to me, and to then try to find a reason it's my fault if anything bad ever happens. Like Job's friends, I tell myself that if something bad ever happens to me or to those around me, it's because I've sinned in some way. And if I've not done anything particularly bad and I really tried, then I'm very tempted to want to blame God for not helping, for not keeping up his end of the I sacrifice fun, you ward off trouble contract. But life's not like that. Grace isn't like that. God's not like that. Christian Kids and Grace Some Christian people really enjoy me talking to their teenage kids because I make their kids think. Others want me to stay really far away from them. What I'm generally looking for is to see if these heavily trained, often homeschooled, bibled-up church kids have much to say about grace and about Jesus, about being a Christian, about what we're saved by and saved from, what Jesus' role is in it for them. I look out for signs of reliance upon a doctrine Dallas Willard calls salvation by attitude instead. I want to see if they place value on Jesus or grace rather than living a good Christian life and following rules. Often, it goes rather like this. So, we're Christians, right? Yeah, it's so awesome, isn't it? I'm going to a youth leadership retreat next month. Spirit Heart Inspiration Training Elite. You're going to teach young teens about Jesus. Yeah. I'm really humbled to have been chosen to be able to just serve him like this. Cool. How'd you get chosen to go? Why did they pick you? Well, I guess people saw that I try to pretty seriously live to please God and really just believe and obey the Bible. And, well, I told my pastor I wanted to, and there was an application form. I had to get references. Nice. A question. You're going to be inspiring young Christian teens to be more Christian. So... What makes us Christians to begin with? Well, like I said, we try to live to please God and we believe and obey the Bible. I'm making a series of YouTube videos about that. They're fun, but inspiring. One has a frog in it. So we make ourselves Christians by believing and obeying. Um, yeah. Does obeying the Bible make us Christians? Yeah, of course. Or is it a matter of what we believe that makes us Christians? Well, yeah, that too. Believing and obeying. Choosing to follow the Bible. So we make ourselves Christians by believing, by choosing, by obeying. Um, not really. This, this, this is getting to be a pretty odd discussion. What church do you go to again? Mom didn't say. Or does Jesus Christ make us Christians? Well, yeah, of course. He does. How? Um, I'm not really sure what you're asking. We're Christians. Are you and I saved? Yes, we're Christians. So we have the basics, like abortion's wrong, we know that. Homosexuality's wrong, we know that. The Bible is true, we all agree on all of that. It, it just makes sense. We're Christians. Christians saved from everlasting hell. How? I'm not sure what you're getting at. How were we saved? What took care of our sin? We believed the Bible, made our choice for God, and we lived to please Him. By obeying? Yes. John Piper has this really great talk about obedience. I got him to autograph my Duck Dynasty study Bible in Iowa this one time. I see. 
So we made ourselves Christians and fixed the sin problem we had by choosing God and by obeying the Bible? Um, sort of. It sounds weird when you word things like that, though. I mean, we're all against gun control, abortion, and gay marriage, and for American freedom, aren't we? Because we're true Christians? Um, I'm not actually American. Question. Did Jesus die? Mm, yes. Did that save us? Did it take care of our sin problem? Oh, yes. How? We sinned and disobeyed the Bible, and so he, who never disobeyed, had to die, and we believe it and obey the Bible to please God. It's easy. So easy, it's hard sometimes. But we believe because we're true believers in him. We believe what? That, that he died. And, uh... And then we should just live to please God and obey the Bible. Really stand for him in this wicked world, you know? Jesus died so we can save ourselves by believing and obeying the Bible. Um, no. Okay, simple question. What is grace? Getting something we don't deserve from God. What exactly did we get that we don't deserve? Not going to hell for being disobedient, wretched sinners. You know, human beings, disgusting creatures of wrath. What does the Bible say? saves us from sin. What I said, believing the Bible and living to please God. Pleasing him by not breaking rules that are in the Bible? Um, well, kinda, but you're kinda putting words in my mouth. Sorry. Okay. What happens if we break rules after being saved? Well, it says we're grafted into Jesus, who is the true vine. And if we don't bear fruit, we will be gathered up and burned. There was this great post on the Gospel Coalition site about that. So, if we don't bear fruit for God, we will go to hell? Not really. But if you don't bear fruit, then you probably never were a real Christian to begin with. I made this chart about that one time. It had pictures of fruit on it. And a sad carrot that doesn't fit in anywhere because it's not a fruit. So it's on fire. It's running around screaming. I see. What would fruit of salvation look like? What I said, obeying the Bible in a country where sin is celebrated, going to church in a world that hates us, living to please God when gays can marry each other just like normal people. TrueChristianPatriots.net has a weekly article about that. What does the Bible say is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, just like from VeggieTales. And what are the works of the flesh? It's right above that in the same chapter. Um, I'm not sure. What is one of the works of the flesh? That's a really good question. Um, homosexuality? Uh, not believing in God? Lost? Yeah, lost. Okay. What is the flesh? The part of us that wants to sin. Does the flesh ever want to be religious and make rules and follow them? No. <laughs> it wants to sin, not make and follow rules. There was this cartoon about it on handgunsforhim.com. I'll link you. Thanks. Does making a list of rules and following them fix the sin problem? To an extent, yes. It sure helps. You need rules. A Christ contract is what Mark Welling calls it. You go over it with your parents and sign it and keep it. I have quite a few of them now. And do you keep those rules? I should, yeah, but sometimes I don't. Hmm, tough luck. So, if you make a list of rules, that fixes sin? Sort of, if you obey it, of course. You should check out that John Piper video about obedience. It's really challenging. Imagine if we lived like that? If we actually obeyed God? So challenging. If you're God, 
Can you fix sin by making people a list of rules for them to follow? Yes. Okay. You're God, and you only get to make ten rules. Can you fix sin with them? If people follow them, yes. When God made ten commandments, was he able to fix sin with them? Um, no, I guess not. People didn't obey them. You can't keep the law. You should, but you can't. Are Christians responsible to keep the law of Moses? Not really. But if we break the law, then something's wrong for sure. We probably never were real Christians. Tim Keller did a really inspiring series of talks on that last summer. Don't you just love Tim Keller? I'm not sure who he is. I'm careful what I take in in terms of Christian stuff. Is sin mainly a problem of what people allow themselves to do or what they want to do? Allow themselves to do. And can sin be not doing things as well as doing things? I guess. Don't rules just cause you to suppress sin without actually fixing the problem? You need rules, though. The Bible says to obey your parents and the powers that be and the people in your church and the Bible itself. Rules are really important. Or else people will sin? Yeah. Without rules, you won't please God. You'll just please yourself instead. Joel Austin teaches pretty faithfully on that. I was humbled to be chosen to sales point one of his CDs to interested people at Spirit Cry Youth Camp last year. Not many takers, though. So sad. So, obedience fixes sin? Yes. We fix sin by obeying. Why did Jesus have to die then? I'm not sure I can really explain that. My pastor could. Something about obedience? We didn't obey, so Jesus had to or something? Like, like Jesus always obeyed God, and that saved us, or whatever. If we live to please him now, if we're a true testimony, just wearing this cross pendant makes me a true testimony. You've memorized a Bible verse every week since way before you can remember, right? Yeah, for sure. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What does the Bible itself say saves us? Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and living to please him, following his commandments, obeying the Bible. Okay, what are the blanks in this verse? For by blank are you saved through faith, and that not of blank, it is the blank. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So what saves us? Like I keep saying, choosing Jesus, reading the Bible, believing it, and living to please God. Being obedient, sold out for him, being on fire every week, spirit drenched. Church is key to that, obviously. Using your own self-control and willpower to attend and obey, even when you feel like sinning instead? Kind of, yes. I'm not sure where this conversation is going. I prefer reading James to reading Galatians and Hebrews. Much stronger and more straightforward. Much more inspiring. All about how faith without works is dead. Tim Keller says the KISS principle is keep it simple, sinner. Hmm. My parents taught me it was kids in Satan's service. But is self-control a fruit of the Holy Spirit coming from God as the result of Christ's death? Or is it something we need to have in ourselves to begin with, to keep from sinning, make a choice for Jesus, and to become a true Christian? I'm not sure. Hadn't really thought about that. Great question, though. And what do rules have to do with this? You need self-control to follow the rules. Otherwise, you'll just do whatever you want. Which will be sin? Yes. I'm just so humbled to be giving a talk about that next month. You should come, and we're streaming it. Cool. And is there anything in the Bible which isn't a rule or even a commandment? Uh, I guess, yeah, some things. Can you give me an example of something in the Bible 
that isn't a rule to be obeyed? Uh, not offhand, no, now that you mention it. But you know that kind of stuff's in there. I guess. So, if a thing in the Bible is not rules, or even commandments, or guidelines, can you obey it? I, gu I guess not really. Well, not obey, but live according to it. So what should you do with all that stuff in the Bible if it's not something to obey? Well, there's not that much of it anyway, so I focus on the stuff that's useful. James, Daniel, Revelation. Like I said, you try to live according to it. If you don't live according to it, and you just do whatever you want, then you're not living to please God. Is there stuff in the Bible that the proper intended response to it is something other than suppressing our sinful tendencies? No. Yes. Maybe. I'm not really sure. I'm not going to lie. This conversation isn't sounding very edifying to me right now. It's not really building me up in my faith. Sounds like unlearned questioning to me. Gotta say. Sorry. Hey, is the fruit of the Spirit mainly things we are commanded to demonstrate outwardly? Or a description of what the Holy Spirit brings about in us by transforming us inwardly? Stuff we are told to demonstrate outwardly as Christians, to be a good testimony, so others will see and find God themselves. Otherwise, what good is it? Does the Spirit bring it about, or our choices? Well, if we follow God's word and do that stuff, then the Spirit can start to get involved, and God can begin to work with us. John Piper talks about that a lot. Have you read Ravished by His Commandments, Gasping in Divine Ecstasy yet? So deep and probing. Powerful stuff. Not yet. Sounds hot, though. So we have to keep from sinning, or the Holy Spirit can't work in us? Yes? I'm not sure. Anyway, you just follow your conscience. Let your conscience be your guide. Do you know where that verse is? I forget, actually. Can you trust your conscience, or has it been trained by flawed human beings? <laughs> it's not trained by human beings. It's from God. So it's a divine creation that's perfect. God gave us a conscience to help us please Him. If we do something, and our conscience says, wait, that wasn't really very good, then we know next time not to do it, because it's probably sin. We feel guilt, and that identifies sin. God gave us a conscience? Yeah, to help us know when we're going to sin. Did God give a conscience to us, or did mankind steal it? I don't know what you mean, steal it? Why would we have to steal it? In Eden. Did God intend man to have the knowledge of good and evil, or did man disobey him to get it, because Satan wanted him to have it and told him to take it because God was holding it back? I'm not sure, but you need rules, and you need to follow your conscience, even in Eden. If you didn't have a conscience, you'd just do whatever you wanted. I have a pretty funny video about that, actually. You should check it out. It has this duck that wants to cross the road even though he's not a chicken. He keeps dying. Have you seen my YouTube channel? Not yet. Link me. Did Jesus actually have to die just in order for us to decide to follow rules and obey our own consciences? I'm not sure I can answer that. I'll ask my pastor. He's so knowledgeable, but so gracious. He's met Rick Warren and Tim Keller. He said to avoid unlearned questions and disputings, though, and I gotta tell you... Well, we'll just talk about Jesus, then. Did Jesus die for any reason other than to help us stop breaking rules? I'm not sure what you mean. Why else would he die? We broke the rules, so he had to keep them and die, or we'd get punished for breaking them. That's what transgressors means, rule breakers. God was filled with wrath because we transgressed. 
our shame and guilt what God wanted us to have as a result of Christ's death? God gave them to us so we would know we've sinned and will think twice about doing it again. They're really important for Christians. Our worship team has this really beautiful hymn they sing called Pour on Me Your Shame, Make Me Yours Again. Did God give man shame? Or did man steal something that gave him a shame that God never intended? And did shame make man approach God or hide from him? He knew he'd done wrong, which is really important. Otherwise, he would just do whatever he wanted. He had the shame to keep him from sinning more. He had a God-given conscience. I made a video about that. It's got more than a thousand views. I'm wearing a shame hat that I made in it. It's like a thinking cap, only it's shame. It's about how I forget to wear it sometimes, and then I sure regret it. So shame is a gift from God to help us not sin. Yeah. Didn't you know that? Who's your pastor? How does grace figure into any of this? If we believe God and obey the Bible, then God won't send us to hell for disobeying him because of his grace. And if we choose Jesus but don't exactly obey the Bible, then God might send us to hell? Well, you probably weren't a true Christian to begin with if you don't obey the Bible, because God doesn't send true Christians to hell. The Bible says, Skip Patterson has a chart with 50 identifiers of true Christians. Have you seen it? Afraid not. And what does the Bible say saves us? Number one on the chart is a regular church attender and tithe giver. Like I said, choosing God and living to please him, following the Bible. Look, you really should come out Sunday and see how we do church. You'll be blown away. My pastor is really knowledgeable. Did Jesus tell people in the Bible that their sins were forgiven? Well, yeah, of course. And did he make sure they were ashamed of themselves first and knew they'd done wrong and needed their sins forgiven and waited until they asked him before he told them their sins were forgiven? Um... Well, I think we agree that being ashamed of yourself and knowing you've done wrong and need your sins forgiven needs to happen first before God can do anything. Or did Jesus just tell them their sins were forgiven without them asking and without them even demonstrating that they were ashamed of themselves at all? Uh, being ashamed of yourself is really important, though. Otherwise, you sin. Does being ashamed of yourself and saying you're sorry help stop you sinning? Yes. Well, it can't hurt. Look. Have you ever actually sinned? Oh, yes. I'm very prideful. And on and on and on. I find it fascinating how naturally and unthinkingly young people who are given a tiny token bit of status or importance default right back into methods, formulas, and rules. Structure. Send a young teenager to one leadership conference, and they're worrying about what their flaws as future leaders might be already, and how to make sure their actions never reveal or even look remotely like sin and give the wrong impression. Being a Christian, particularly a Christian leader, is about never showing spiritual flaws, apparently. It's about maintaining appearances served by structure and rules. It's about suppressing the true you so you won't sin. I suppose it's no wonder when their elders have taught them about their Christianity and the Bible itself by using a bunch of references to speed limits, police officers, judges, walls, fences, ditches, and the like. Limits, with a clear focus upon how we are being perceived by others. They've been taught basically, whenever you're in any doubt at all, it's safest to assume the Bible is not in support of a given action. The onus has always been on people who want to disregard a rule, to prove the rule is wrong, rather than the other way around. So if the rule of the Christian camp is that girls can't wear shorts, you have to prove that rule is wrong, or it's going to stay a rule forever. 
evil secret. If you want to encourage young people to stay on a path of legalism, make them enforcers and teachers on a small scale. You know, like the Hitler Youth, children only resent rules because they're not in charge. Put them in charge of anything, and they'll enforce any rules you give them. Jake, only 20 himself, says, I have a friend who's never really broken rules, but he's 20 and the downside is mostly dealing with fear and control. I see a lot of him that is purely emotional reaction to things for no other reason than things were always presented to him as bad or wrong, and it's new for him to be able to think about this stuff for himself. There's a right response to things, a proper way to live, and not a lot of thought or articulated reasons as to why. He is visibly working and growing through spending time around more liberal Christians, however. Last weekend, I took my high school's trivia team to play in Toronto with the 40 best teams in Ontario. Many of the other kids were from exclusive prep schools and had already been accepted to prestigious universities. Coaches hosted games all day, and a few Bible questions cropped up. One of these genius kids, prominently wearing a small wooden cross around his neck, was consistently scoring on Bible questions in an age when even church kids seldom have much Bible knowledge. Then, in the middle of the play, as judge, I read the question, What does the word Bible literally mean? As we all know, the word means book and is from the same source as bibliography. Genius kid's answer? Um, law? This from the kid who scored with Syria, the same game. With the way we present it, no one's ever going to think the book of love refers to the Bible, nor that it has much to say about peace or joy or freedom. They can be forgiven for thinking the book is a book of rules, laws, because that's what we're teaching by our actions, reactions, and emphasis, by the images and language we use when conveying Bible knowledge. Oaths Peter Zimmer, a guy online who has more than a slight whiff of well-oiled, iron-clad, black-and-white thinking to his Facebook statuses, posted a link this week to a site where Christians were supposed to take an oath to... I forget, vow something or other. Take the oath, it said, to help abolish gay marriage or gun control or feeding the poor or something. I can't keep up with all the things I'm supposed to take a clear stand against. Okay, I went and I checked. It's an oath from 1910 against modernism. The fact that it is on Facebook is kind of funny. You like it, and that's taking the oath against modern thinking and methods. Most of Peter's statuses are shrilly announcing things like the scientific fact that climate change is fraudulent and that heightened CO2 levels aren't happening at all. And anyway, if they are, they're actually really, really good and natural and stuff. Just what we want. Or else they are caused by gays. A little tongue-in-cheek, I pointed out that to swear that oath on Facebook against modernism would disobey the direct commandment of Jesus in the Bible not to swear by anything. Peter rose to this comment. He decided that swearing to and swearing by are different, and said I could include this quote from him in this very book, as he's quite pleased with it. If everyone was Christian and perfectly living out his faith, there'd be no need for oaths. I'm no longer satisfied with this point of view, however. Our Lord Jesus Christ came not as a teacher of spiritual advice or ideal behavior. He came as a legislator to give laws in the real world, that is, in the world in which we live. The absolute character of his statement implies a real prohibition. 
to not swear at all is qualified by a prohibition against swearing by God or things that belong to God alone. At this point, I believe solemn oaths to God or invoking his aid, so help me God, do not fall under the prohibition. If we take our Lord to condemn all swearing, he would be condemning covenant-making, which is impossible. Doesn't matter what the Bible says, I guess, if you think you know what it means. According to Peter Zimmer, Jesus came to give laws. About gouging your eyes out and hating your father and mother, perhaps? Jesus as lawgiver, as legislator. Never mind that the central message of the verse, swear not by anything, seems to be that we are to be taken at our word without having to swear or take an oath or anything of that nature. Our yes is to be known by everyone to mean yes, and our no should be clearly understood to mean no. That's what kind of people we are to be. I find the whole passive-aggressive and not-using-bad-words thing in Christian circles often makes our no into ask-me-some-more, and our yes into, well, I know I should, but... Also, it makes our F-off any number of passive-aggressive, less simple, less honest pronouncements. Things we can deny the anger in. We can diss someone and not admit it. I don't think I should be telling people to F off all the time, but were I to, I think it would be far more honest to simply say it rather than something all pious sounding. Right now on Facebook, Connor is posting his opinion that labeling abnormal sexuality normal is really a way of labeling normal sexuality abnormal. Also, a Christian couple is threatening to divorce if same-sex marriages happen in the country where they live. And a pastor who hasn't lit himself on fire yet, even though gay marriage is legal in all states, is claiming he was misunderstood when he spoke of lighting himself on fire if it happened. And then some other pastor did light himself on fire and died to protest the protest against gay marriage. Fascinating. This is our collective testimony. As in my own case, Jake found that actually reading the actual Bible ended up giving him a roiling head full of stuff that challenged, rather than supported, all of the lifestyle constraints he'd grown up with. He says, The Bible constantly causes me to question rules spoken and unspoken from not only my upbringing, but from teaching that I still hear today. Many of the people who responded to an online survey I did about this simply said, unquotably, yes, when asked if the Bible challenged rule-focused living. A few gave other not terribly quotable affirmations, too, that when they read the Bible, it does more to challenge the idea of a Christian living a life bounded by innumerable rules and legalism than to enforce that idea. And various brethren people who did not respond to my online questions are on the internet arguing right now over whether, according to the Apostle Paul, women have to cover their entire hair, burqa style, when praying and prophesying silently, or if some small token bow of submission on their heads is sufficient, and whether all martial arts are satanic. Ruth points out the sad irony in using the writings of Paul, the reformed Pharisee of the Pharisees, the artist formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, to make more law to put people under. Silly Galatians, tricks is for kids. Whoops, misquoted that. Foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? 
Many translations use the word commandments in parts of the Bible where the word instruction or teaching is what's actually being said. That's a huge change. Very often, we're being taught, inspired, changed, and nourished, rather than just being told what not to do. Job's Unhelpful Religious Friends The story of Job was always very instructive for me. Here's my best understanding of it. In essence, the story of Job is that Satan, shown as he's always depicted in the Bible, completely free to wander the earth and go with the other angelic beings into the heavenly realms as well, and certainly not locked up in hell, waiting to be released by an unwary teenager listening to Judas Priest and playing with the Parker Brothers Ouija board. Satan bets God that Job is really only faithful and thankful because God gives him good stuff in his life. The bet is that if Satan is allowed to remove the good stuff and make bad stuff happen for no reason, that Job will curse God. This will prove Satan right, that Job's nothing for God to brag about after all, that he's only in it for the blessing. God agrees. Satan screws up Job's life royally with unnatural disasters, killing his whole family apart from his wife and taking away his health and prosperity and so on. But Job does not curse God. Many of us would be saying, F you, God, after a week or so of burying every one of our kids and their wives and sitting on a dung heap suffering seeping skin lesions outside our ruined house when we'd done absolutely nothing bad as far as we knew. This is why the patience of Job is an expression. I was always taught that patience has the connotation of endurance here. He's not being patient with God so much as enduring hardship. And then the interesting part of the story happens. Some religious people decide to help, to visit Job, to be comforting. And they suck. Why am I not surprised? Showing up with their inspirational CDs, instructive books, and trite sayings, their comforting verses, their personal assumptions, their links to inspiring YouTube videos, their pastor's Twitter feed, all talking about life as if, if you obey God, he has to bless you with success, and if you aren't thriving, then you haven't earned grace. In my lifetime, religious people who have tried to help me have always gone about it in the same way. They've taken that same dysfunctional view of grace and how God works and have brought it to bear on anything that I've found troubling in my life. If things aren't working out well for me, these friends reflexively, unthinkingly cast doubt on me, like Job's unhelpful company. Having trouble getting a job, a car, a girl? They assume I've screwed something up somehow because it's not God or Satan doing it. They soon start guessing after how exactly I've screwed up this time before God based on what they see as my social and character flaws, chief among which is generally my refusal to accept what they say instantly and at face value. But in the Job story, the religious people are wrong. A younger guy named Elihu and then God himself make all this very clear. The three helpers are just being religious and they're not seeing what's going on. They're certainly not getting any revelations about the situation from God and are therefore just making up stuff based on how they already see the world, based on the idea that you earn grace. Why would God not bless you? I want God to bless me. Of course I do. Prosperity gospel people love the idea that if you make sacrifices, serve your church, and generally be religious, that God will make you richer and richer every day. 
If you invest money in the God Fund, then God will pay off in ample financial dividends at the end of each fiscal quarter, because he has to, lest he lose his attribute of fairness. And you can make this happen. You can earn this success with your selfless generosity. How do we view things when we're not getting blessed like we want, or if bad stuff is happening? People who genuinely screw their lives up through bad choices like to talk about God speaking. They love the idea that it is God who makes their lives suck rather than their own bad choices. These people then impose this view on anyone whose life is not as sunshiny as could be hoped for any number of reasons. Bad stuff is happening for educational reasons. That's one popular and appealing theory. In my church culture, they had a handy alliterative list of the only three possible reasons God might speak to us or actually allow something unpleasant to happen to one of his own. First reason, the problem might be punitive. As mentioned earlier, God may be punishing us for doing something bad. With we young people, the old folks wanted to imagine this was going on at all times. Young people like entertainment, and entertainment was sin. And some of the young folks weren't peculiar enough and could possibly be mistaken for a regular worldly person instead of a meeting person. They were trying to pass. So if bad stuff happened, we were seen as incurring God's wrath for this infraction to teach us a lesson we sorely needed. Preventative. God might be speaking preemptively. Maybe you hadn't screwed up yet, but you would one day, so he was punishing you in advance so you'd get all freaked out, and maybe you wouldn't sin when the time came, kind of like Minority Report. And preparatory. This was for special people. God had a wonderful plan to use you one day, and so if anything bad happened in your life, it was certainly happening in order to prepare you to go to Africa or something. These three Ps certainly could be self-fulfilling. If your child died and you feared it was your fault due to one of the first two things, all you had to do was simply go to Africa after you'd buried your child, and everyone would know that it was option three that had been the reason for the trouble. God had been preparing you for Africa. Simple. Flattering. In real life, this stuff is a real brain cooker. There are two questions in the Bible that are consistently troubling to people in both Old and New Testaments as to how our world very clearly works. Number one, why do bad things happen to good people? And number two, why do good things happen to bad people? If you look at them, you can see that these are really the same question, and they come down to, is God doing his job? Is he fair? When there's drought, he's not sending rain to the good and the bad people alike. When there's an earthquake, good and bad people alike get hurt, suffer property loss, and sometimes die. Not just good people win the lottery or are born smart and good-looking to affluent parents. How is God fair? Maybe God doesn't have to be fair. Upon reading the Bible some more, I have to conclude that God isn't fair. The entire book seems to be story after story after story, of him being nice to certain people because he liked them and felt like it, and not because they were worthy or had earned it. Many of them weren't even very nice. And God didn't feel obligated to spread this kindness around equally, didn't punish everyone the same, or even every time. Some people really rather got away with murder, literally. Others got chucked to the curb for violating burnt offering protocols. 
God definitely played favorites. He doesn't seem fair at all, not as some men count fairness. And being God, I'm not sure he owes grace or mercy to anyone. So it doesn't make him unfair not to show it whenever he doesn't. I struggled in my twenties with the troubling idea that maybe God didn't work the way we wanted him to. He didn't appear to reliably leap in and immediately bring karmic consequences upon people whenever they did something bad. He also didn't seem to dependably show up and reward good behavior in time for the weekend so we could praise him for it on Sunday. Some people don't want to even bother believing in God if he isn't going to be fair. The thing that most helps me understand about having power and judging people professionally is in my profession, in my classroom. Many kids I teach at school think amazing things like, if they complete every assignment, they should get 100% in the course, because that's only fair. Not that they have any intention of actually trying to complete every assignment in the course, of course, of course. 100% work completion, they feel, should result in them being evaluated as 100% competent. You may not be aware of this, but some kids are actually very stupid and say annoying things. And some don't smell very good at all. They also think that if everyone tries equally, they should all get the same grade. That's all based on shoulds that aren't any realer than most shoulds are dubiously idealistic utopias. It's not like that, really. And it shouldn't be, actually. The fact is, some kids don't have to try as hard. And other kids try really hard, and in so doing demonstrate a staggering lack of ability and knowledge. In my classes, I reward talent, too. That's not very fair. They were, or weren't, born with that, after all. Most of the kids do work, and only some of them achieve excellence, often due to something God unfairly gave them at birth. This shows up in writing assignments and in gym, art, and music classes alike, and when they apply to modeling agencies. So this question is a tough one. Is there a God, and is he on the job? How does one live a life and deal with him? I could never really not believe that there was a God, this has far more to do with my upbringing and how I naturally am made than any great devotion or spiritual insight. Maybe God chose me as someone who would believe in him more than I ever chose to believe in him through any insight of my own or even solid upbringing. So I always believe in him. But I often have trouble believing he cares or is involved in my world in any way that I can see. I have trouble expecting to see said involvement successfully achieving any good for me. In the early days of the church, that's thousands of years ago, not in the early days of the Plymouth Brethren movement, many sacrificed their very lives for God. It really does appear that God wanted them to do it, too, so he'd be glorified. He certainly didn't stop the mouths of the lions, as he'd done with Daniel. Who knows how many Christians were mauled by lions or otherwise massacred with full knowledge that God had stepped in for Daniel in the past, but wasn't doing it for them that afternoon because he wanted them to die. Did they blame themselves? Did they wonder if God was being fair? It makes me wonder what use God was getting out of them. So I tend to believe in a God who, if your dying for some reason suits him better than your living, will absolutely make sure you die, sometimes horribly if it honors him. And many have been delighted to honor God by dying. I don't know if I have that in me. God's given me the opposite job, and it's not easy. To honor him by living a really long time, well, and never confusing him with his fan club. 
Sometimes I wonder just how many of our Bible studies the early Christian martyrs would have had it in them to sit silently through before they called for a lion or a stake. The Apostle John writes that a man lived his whole life blind, begging on the street, purely so he could one day feature in a story of Jesus healing someone's blindness. Jesus said this very directly. Sometimes God makes things suck so he can be seen making them better later. To be fair, God didn't owe a single one of us sight. Not that man, and not anyone. Today, there are children, no doubt in Africa, who are praying to God for food because they are starving to death. And he's going to let some of them starve today instead of seeing that they have food. And the rest of us are going to grow ever fatter than we are today and pray to God daily to try to help us not be so fat. And we'll grow fatter anyway. It's cheerful thoughts like this that rather than make me an atheist, leave me wondering, who is God and what's he up to? Do I like him? I always like Jesus, but then everybody does. Getting the life I wanted. Because of the father I had growing up, I have always found it fairly easy to believe in a God who will keep me from major trouble. My dad was always there for me if there was trouble. And he was very worried about me being safe, almost as much as my mother. And so I have lived a life remarkably free from major trouble. I have never broken a bone, got stitches, needed surgery, gotten sued, gotten arrested, or gotten hit in the face more than once or twice, and that only by people my own age. I have never missed more than a meal or two here or there. I have never been sexually molested either, though a meeting person or two seemed bent on it, as I recall. My senses work, apart from my being nearsighted. My limbs work most of the time, too, though my knees tend to pop out of socket, and I'm good at certain things, naturally, without having to try very hard. So what more do I want from God? I've always wanted three things. Number one, a job so I can make money. Number two, to fit in at a church or at least be able to connect with and enjoy other Christians. And number three, a wife and maybe even kids. God has always looked after the first one. Not a lot of money. But I've pretty much always had some kind of work. He's shown very little interest in following through on the other two, though, no matter what. You can guess which of the three have involved decades of prayer to no apparent effect. And yet, I think he's come through on those in a typical reverse fashion, like my own father would. He rescued me from a church I could never have left on my own, which was killing me spiritually. He's interfered repeatedly when I wanted a woman who was, in retrospect, not a good idea at all. He hardened the hearts of the elders in my assembly. He made sure these women really didn't understand me, really didn't appreciate me, and went off into the sunset, generally within a day or two, of me telling God that if she wasn't a good idea, he was invited to get involved very directly, because if he let me, I was going for her. But this has still left me trying to deal with a God who doesn't generally tell me what he wants, often doesn't give me what I want, allows bad things to happen to good people I love for no apparent reason, and good things to happen to bad people I do not like much, again, for no reason readily apparent to me. It's tough to know what to do with all of that. Atheism is the logical answer, some very logical people are quick to tell me, but F logic, I say. I have bigger fish to fry than can be caught with mere logic. I need something with a hook. Man cannot live by logic alone, though it gets teeth brushed and shoes tied. A confession. I had my heart set on being a Plymouth Brethren idiot. 
I wanted it all. I wanted to wear my suit and sit up there looking resplendently corporate, talking about the Bible with my beautiful submissive wife sitting next to me, all glossy and befrocked and sleek despite having given me four clean, respectful children. I wanted to fire out a cleverly prepared answer to any possible question anyone could throw at me about the Bible. I wanted to help do Bible conferences and be recorded on tape speaking at them. I wanted all of that. Oddly, God didn't seem to share my vision for my future, didn't seem to think it would make the world a better place or something, didn't seem to need another one of those. I believe in a God who, in his grace, despite there being no real reason I couldn't have achieved most of that brethren stuff, made sure that I had to follow him instead of becoming the person I was raised to aspire to become and whose wife I very much coveted. He grabbed me early on and yanked my head out of my church and set me on an altogether less explicable, foreseeable path. It was as if every time I scratched the surface of brethren dogma, picked away at it like a scab, that I'd fall through and be suddenly yanked into something much deeper and more real, and this quite against the advice of those in authority in my assembly. I think God wanted me to know him, even if it meant sacrifice. Sacrificing being a brethren person, sacrificing a wife and kids, sacrificing having somewhere to go to get in out of the rain on Sunday morning, sacrificing the system of pleasure sacrifice. I believe all this, purely from how I understand my dealings with him. Crazy, I know. It's a cliché to say, I felt the hand of God upon me. But I say that anyway, and I think that what happened is called grace. Seeing Good and Finding God As part of finding God for real, I decided that church, as we were doing it, was a problem. The problem, maybe. I'm not the only brethren-raised person who has trouble recognizing and accepting good without judgment and suspicion. To this day, it is quite difficult for me to see God in good things, to remember to look for him in things outside of those disappointing and unfulfilling all-too-human church or Christian community efforts, to see him in sunsets, in the swaying walk of a happy, beautiful woman, in the warm buzz of teasing in a comfortable group of family or friends in the stars, in your friends meeting your friends' friends and getting along, in stuff like that. It's hard to remember to look for God in things other than hymns and prayers of self-abnegation and in grandiose vows of total surrender of self, to see God making me better, more myself, rather than only expecting to see his hand in my own vowing not to be me for him. I'm still learning to see life and connection and beauty as being good things from God, instead of distractions from proper Christian solemnity, as things I have to indulge myself in or become a rebel to enjoy. I was always taught in Sunday school that many enjoyable things were fine in their place and in moderation, but I think I was raised to elevate caution and moderation to a degree that was, ironically, immoderate. Sometimes you need to drink deeply of the cup of rejoicing. So I've been trying to live life a bit more deeply and without being careful for everything, positively crippled by caution and expecting the other divine shoe to drop and preparing to get a divine smack. I'm learning to see God in small stuff now too. Regular stuff, nice stuff, temporary stuff. It's not easy. Tasting Goodness 
One thing I started doing that I can really recommend is to start going around expecting good stuff to be there, just lying around, instead of always expecting the inevitable godsmack. A huge secret being kept from us brethren people, apparently, is that there is good in this world, because God put it there. Not so much the world as in the human system of power currently flexing its muscles, so much as planet Earth. We can and should find it and enjoy and share all the good stuff that's here. You don't manufacture good by purging away all the evil. Good isn't an absence of evil. Good is good. It's its whole own thing. It's alive, unpredictable, and often temporary and messy. I'm committed to wading into some of it. The Bible doesn't say, Oh, know and remember that the Lord is useful and edifying and believe that he works in your life. It says, Oh, taste, a quite sensual word, and see, again with the sense imagery, that the Lord is good. He is of infinite worth, excellence, virtue, value. You can taste that stuff. But I don't feel like we trusted God and the Bible to be worthwhile and good all by themselves. Bible verses had to be useful for us and our quest to be the rightest. Otherwise, we kind of elbowed them aside. Our loss, because a whole lot of the Bible is worthwhile and of deep value for other very different reasons. I'm trying to read it that way nowadays. And I think the time we spent and the interest we took in endlessly justifying God and the Bible to others just reveals that we felt like they needed us to do that like their virtue wasn't obvious or self-evident to anyone but us, not something others would be able to taste and see. So it was up to us to explain it, we apparently thought, to give such a strong show of belief that others would be pulled in. All of the pat answers and twisty arguments for the existence, relevance, and goodness of God, for creationism, and why gay marriage, divorce, early-term abortion, drinking alcohol, Harry Potter, and listening to pop music were all killing our society and bringing damnation upon us? They seem a bit shrill to me now. Desperate. I see people arming themselves with these and going looking for someone to fight as to them in a time when most people don't usually care much about what your position on anything is. Positions are like recta. Every single person has one, but people don't necessarily want to be subjected to yours quite without warning. You can always get a reaction if you try, though, by aggressively airing your position on everything right at people quite unprovoked. But people seldom learn anything from that. Nor do you. No one ever learns anything either when people protest and you then cry that your right to air your positions is being violated. Also, it looks less and less like we're doing all this for God, or certainly for our victims, who we're trying to logic and lecture into heaven. And it looks more and more to me like it's ourselves we're trying to convince, like we're just cheering for our own team colors. God put good stuff out there. Why not dig into some? I have exactly that fool's heart that will turn away from perfectly good fun to have a stupid argument with a person who, to all intents and purposes, is never going to understand me, nor why I think and feel the way I do. Now, one has to ask, why would I choose to argue with some annoying person, giving him or her time and priority over the attractive, warm, pleasant, kindly ones and all the things that are outside to be enjoyed? I've always been stupid like that doesn't seem like a recipe for success, makes one wonder what the incentive is. How right does one need to feel before it's okay to have some fun? Virtue and being positive. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the answer to everything is being positive. That's not the secret to any improved state of emotional and spiritual health I can claim since my adolescence. I'm much more content nowadays, but being positive isn't what worked. People are always saying stuff about being positive, and often they mean nothing more than being cheerful, which clearly isn't a terribly sane or workable attitude to any number of human experiences. Just resolving to walk around being or seeming cheerful all the time isn't going to fix most problems in the world, nor is it possible or advisable for absolutely everyone all the time. In fact, there's nothing that shuts down openness and sincerity more than an environment of mandatory cheerfulness. But there's something to the idea of the positive. I'm positive there is. I've already said that the word that is usually translated virtue or virtuous in the King James Bible isn't about piety or abstinence from bad fun stuff, but about effectiveness, about power, workableness, value, excellence. Given that, we also know that there needs to be a workable, worthwhile, excellent outcome in order for us to bother with most things. Otherwise, why do them? Where's the virtue in that? For instance, it's not enough for people in an oppressive culture to simply get free of it. Sure, we can want to get free, many of us. Being free is nice and all of that. And God seems to insist upon freeing our hearts and minds whether we want him to or not. But free to what? From what only takes you to the door to stand looking out, or maybe standing around on the lawn feeling good about not being cooped up in the house. But there's a whole world out there. If there's nothing worth going exploring to find, then why would you even get off the couch? If God wants us free from unhelpful stuff, then it's pretty sure that he wants us free to pursue good stuff also. Because it's not just a case of God allowing us to be, of him being willing to let us be, a tiny bit freer than we've been led to believe. It's so much more. It's about God needing to free us because he needs us freer than we currently are in order to ensure Jesus didn't die for nothing terribly much. He needs us to be freer in order to do what he wants to do next, with and through and in us. In fact, God needs us to be freer so he can bless us in ways off from which we're currently cut. Seeing exactly what it is we've been doing that's dumb, ineffective, twisted, cowardly, and weak is one thing, but the decision to try to get better at it, to face the negative as part of understanding the whole and become better, all seems terribly worthwhile. I mean... Avoiding looking at harsh realities in our lives isn't being positive at all. It's just being blind, obviously. It's not safe walking around like that. Contrary to the perky advice of a self-help book that's out there, I don't think it's a whit more helpful to the world if you're Tigger than if you're Eeyore. Tigger's too coked up to be of much use to anyone. Wallowing in the unpleasantness for a bit is perhaps a token step toward bettering things, insofar as recognizing that things are unpleasant and need to be bettered. But it's only a token step, something you might have to do with your feelings while they adjust to new knowledge of real obstacles. I think we have to go through life looking fairly directly at most of it. Pleasant, unpleasant, whatever. Laying aside the comforting idea that we more or less know what's what. We have to start new sometimes. I think we should be opening our minds to rethinking stuff. To God. Real God, not God as described by our pastor. Not just God from back in Bible days. No, God who even knows and gets involved in what's going on on the interwebs. I think hope comes from that growth process. 
from trying to be more good things, not just imitating or resolving them, even, for example, vowing not to say anything negative to one's spouse at all today, love dare style, which is only about restraining real heart-deep urges or forcing outward behavior, actually looking to be transformed inside by the work of Christ over time and becoming, inside, a living, growing, saner, braver, loving, stronger person. That's where it's at. And that stuff only comes from God, who clearly has stuff in mind for the future. God with you. I had always been taught to assume that if everything I did met the expectations of meeting people, then I was doing God's will. God was certainly with me. If I asked for something that God was going to give me anyway, why then he'd still give it to me. The power of prayer. But in my twenties, I'd come smack up against the possibility that sometimes what the church people expected and what God expected might clash, that meeting people might turn from me when God, quite distinct from them, was with me. So how to know if you have God with you in how you're living and what you're doing. If I was having trouble achieving something and felt like I was being opposed in it, I had to decide whether I was being opposed by God or other things. I decided that if I was going to do something good, something in God's name, which he'd like, which would honor or glorify him, that I could always expect problems and opposition, attacks even. No good deed went unchallenged. So the question was whether it was God or something else providing the opposition. If I was doing something genuinely Jesus-like and God-serving, I could expect, of course, problems with those of Pharisee bent. That's true for anyone. I started to find myself falling into certain jobs. I wasn't supposed to be a useful, helpful person to others as far as my meeting judge matters, yet more and more, various thinking, hurting, and wounded people started seeking me out. Well-intentioned meeting people warned them off, of course. The reality was, though, that the people who held positions which identified them as those whose job it was to help hurting people often weren't much use at all. So to do this job, I had to get very used to spiteful nastiness about those troubled people confiding in me. And not all opposition, I'd been raised to believe, is human. I believe there are things that need to keep Christians all bound up and messed around. I think if God uses you to provide a bit of comfort or insight, you're messing with some things. But I decided back in the day that if God wants something good to happen, he's most likely going to get his way. He might wait until he can find someone who's really into achieving it. God insists upon working on earth through human beings and almost everything, I believe, as he gave this earth to us and doesn't snatch it back like a dad taking back birthday presents. But likely, he's going to get the thing he wants eventually. So I decided that if I thought something good should be done, and things started to look problematic and storm clouds started to gather, that there were two obvious possibilities. Number one, either it was because I was mistaken and my course of action wasn't good at all and God wasn't interested and wasn't with me in it and it would never succeed. Or the opposite was going on, that I was rocking the boat by starting to achieve something good, that I was being opposed by forces evil and bureaucratically mundane, forces God would hopefully not allow to thwart me. So I should keep going. I saw the thing as akin to a game of chicken. If you don't flinch, you'll find out if the thing can be done. Because fear is a great way of manipulating human beings, fear and pride, together an unbeatable combo. And I was raised to both. Sometimes we encounter pride 
disguised as shame, which is nothing more than pride disappointed. Wrestling with Fear and Doubt Fear and doubt have always been real problems in my society, my family, and my church culture. Fear can rob you of a lot of things in life. One thing I do now sometimes is ask myself, are you dreading what will happen next when there's no real reason to feel you even know it will be something bad? Are you being blinded and led by fear? Are you suffering from dread even though nothing bad has happened and nothing bad may ever happen? Because I constantly find myself doing that, expecting the worst. There aren't too many people, towns, countries, or centuries that have ever been safer either, so it's dumb. So as an exercise, I make myself imagine a couple of other non-horrifying ways that things might very well go today. I tend to imagine in detail all kinds of crap that may go wrong, so I just put my imagination to work, conjuring happy scenarios to stack right beside the doom and gloom ones. What I find is that fearing and dreading life really properly takes all of your brain cycles. So that kind of goes away if it has to share headspace with pleasant imaginings. Dump in any happy imagined scenarios, and it really takes the wind out of the sails of the dread. When I first started to try to achieve good instead of just living a sin management week in which I didn't break rules, I would naturally expect things to all go wrong for everything to look quite impossible and absolutely doomed. This always happened, too. But then I'd just keep trying to see if all the gloom and doom melted away like so much parlor trickery and empty posturing and threats, to see if God might step up and honor my clumsy attempts to honor him and live life well, to see if I could learn to respond appropriately to things the only proper response to which is joy. I am pleased to report this has worked pretty well. But my natural tendency is to second-guess myself, to assume that I'm always wrong somehow. My natural tendency is to be afraid to imagine improvement or growth or blessing of any kind. Whenever I imagined anything good, if my father caught wind of it, he always leaped in to let me down easy about how life generally turns out, to point out the danger and folly he felt was inherent in hoping, to convince me to stop hoping, dreaming, planning, and trying anything much, to protect me from disappointment. I'm trying to grow beyond that a bit, give good a chance, let hope have her wicked way with me, let joy and warmth flow out of me as a natural response before they rot from being left on the shelf too long. But it is also very natural for me to be dissatisfied with fake stuff, with pretending that something is good or working or helpful or already achieved, when actually it's very clearly crap. Admiring fake virtue is, I think, a great way to make sure there's no real virtue to be had. So I always want real worth. I look for workability rather than just wall-mounted, web-posted, inspiring claims and shameless, unearned self-congratulation, and I generally want to help people. I look for stuff that's messed up, and I try to help. I want everything to be better than it is. I want people and things to have to be as advertised. I want me, and I want the people I know, to be better, and to be getting better all the time. I want to be able to smell growth in the air around me. Too much of the world stinks of dust, death, diesel fumes, and decay. I am deeply unsettled by people, relationships, and situations where death, rot, lies, exploitation, corruption, and chaos seem to win out. Because I need to see God here. I need him to care and be doing something. 
I think this is, in a small way, a triumph over my Laodicean upbringing when we already felt we had everything God wanted to give, where there was no expectation that there was anything we still needed to get. Anything more real, heartfelt, helpful, deep, workable, or good than what we already had, which was a recipe for real despair in my case. So this is better, because now I go to God and look for him to get involved, to bless things and help because of his grace, simply because he wants to. I don't wait until I think I deserve his involvement. I'd be waiting forever. The big impediment to that, of course, is a faltering ability to believe in a God who likes me. In my head, I can believe that God designed people and that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made and that even I have been made with a certain virtue or work to God built right into me and being developed throughout the year. I can mentally assent to that idea, but in the course of a week, I have very little success in feeling like God likes me or that I am doing anything good that he likes very much at all. Now, part of this, I'm going to have to go ahead and blame on my past baggage. It takes a fairly strong personality to grow up being treated as weird, as not quite right, as not quite normal, as certainly problematic and definitely not useful, and somehow turn around and say, I was more or less what God made me to be, and was sometimes part of a solution to problems and was useful to him. I certainly can't feel like that most of the time. Culture is powerful. Formative years form you. If you have kids, remember that you can make them feel like they are a problem rather than being people who sometimes help solve problems. They need to feel like they could be a solution, at least sometimes. If you want to be a solution, of course, and no one wants to talk about there even being a problem, you are a problem to them acting that way. You need to be able to stand up and make a difference anyway. It's awkward. Everyone stands around in tuxedos drinking champagne, celebrating the fact that the holy washing machine works, not letting anyone actually put clothes into it as that would be irreverent to the holy machine, and you show up in coveralls with a tool belt, some rubber hoses, and a hose clamp. And you start mopping away the water that's leaking out from under said machine and getting ready to have a look behind it, like there might be something to fix. You are especially a problem if one of the men drinking self-congratulatory victory champagne in his tuxedo is the duly elected executive officer in charge of machine maintenance. Watch out for him. He'll take you to the cleaners before you know it. You're a threat. Why did I think of a holy washing machine? I guess I was thinking of this silly little song I wrote when I'd been kicked out of my assembly for thinking, growing, and trying to help and talk to people, even if they'd been labeled problematic and to be avoided. It's silly. But here it is. I'm a red sweater. What could be better than to stay all nice and clean? I got this idea. It just suits me. I never leave the washing machine. Blood and sweat, grass stains, you bet. And grease and dirt and food. Never seen the world firsthand, but I'm told that it's very rude. Nothing close up in my nose in my mate's tag, so bright. Scream and shout and kick them out, which of course is only right. Yeah, I'll be faded and tired. No one day too holy to mend up or dawn. But when I'm tagged and bagged, I won't be a 
filthy rag, just a faded twist of pinkish yarn. I'm a red sweater, what could be better than to stay all nice and clean? Got this idea, it just suits me I never leave the washing machine The washing machine I am talking about following God rather than worshipping the church. You may see the church ostracizing, alienating, or otherwise hurting someone for being confused, or weak, or hurt, for not knowing all the stuff we're required to be certain of, for seeking, for having doubt, for going through a rough patch. You may see them punishing this with shame, blaming the victim, walking by on the other side of that Jericho road. I have often seen this. Churches really seem to hate dissatisfied customers and feel the need of getting rid of them. They're bad for business. The longer you attend and the church answers still aren't fixing you, the more they seem to want you to leave. Ask the guy sitting in the wheelchair year in, year out at a church that prides itself on miraculous faith healing. If you reach out to help someone the church is in the process of spitting out, often you get threatened. You are told that the safe thing to do when someone's so clearly ailing is to draw away so you don't get what they've got. If they actually die, spiritually, that will be that. And if they get better, then maybe they can come back in with the rest of us. This is how we keep the church healthy, spiritually speaking. It's Christ's way. This nonsense is what you're told if you have anything like my life experience. Don't help the hurting people, the confused people, the lost people. They are the problem. Why can't they just follow Jesus and be a happy, helpful part of this church? This is how you're expected to view things and how you're being asked to behave. Not like Jesus who touched lepers. If he were here today, it would be people with AIDS. So if you decide to follow through on the urge to bring a hurting person chicken soup, spiritually speaking, or literally, you may well open yourself to attacks from your culture. But is it worth doing? I think so. I even think so, despite the fact that the person you try to help might well backstab you to get church brownie points with the people who are disapproving of the both of you. Backstabbing problem people wins you a lot of support, shows you're with the program. I've had it done to me, for sure, when trying to help hurting people who are seeking a way to climb back on the heap and recommence the piety contest. But I still think you should try to help even if you're not a pastor whose paid job it is to fix things. I even think so, despite the fact that I was kicked out and shunned for life by my church culture, partly because of that very situation happening. Ultimately, though, my getting kicked out feels like Joseph being sold into slavery to Egyptians. He goes from being a shepherd boy loved by his father but despised by his brothers to being second in command and trusted spiritual advisor to the pharaoh of Egypt, with his brothers showing considerably more respect for him than formerly. For my part, I went from being a brethren lamb living in absolute terror that I'd be kicked out if I ever said or did, wrote or wore a wrong thing ever, yet needing to do it anyway, to eventually getting kicked out for writing the wrong thing and suddenly finding that I was free, much more free than I wanted to be, free to serve God free to write and say whatever I feel will honor God or make people think and feel things about him. And it feels like he's into this in a way he was never, ever into that other life path. God doesn't appear to be into bondage. 
I no longer live a life of obeying God's rules, so he has to bless me with my birth culture informing me as to all of those rules. I do not need to obey per se, but certainly should not break either, of course. Not if I love Jesus. Love makes you please someone. Rules make you resent someone. Ask a wife who loves her husband. Carol says, when she loves her husband, she wants to do stuff he wants, and it doesn't feel like obedience at all. She does stuff he'll like, even if he doesn't know in advance he's going to like it or that it's even happening. When he's a jerk, he could try to order her to do things he'd like. Now I try to grasp the idea that God made me on purpose, is no fool, gets use of me, and likes me, will work things out with me when I screw up and still be glorified. He wants to use me. I no longer merely build my whole week around a church that keeps watch to make sure I'm sacrificing all opportunities for pleasure. There's more to my week than sin management. And most people don't need to leave or get kicked out of a church to live like this. If, unlike me, you are accepted by a church which doesn't insist upon taking charge and controlling most of your time and what you think, say, where, write, and do, then go for it. Enjoy that acceptance. If they will let you do good things, even if you aren't in Africa, instead of merely claiming to be a group which is good and achieves good things, I think you should keep doing that. Why not? I do think you should be very careful to never substitute any church for God, though. That line between, I worship God in my church, to, I worship my church, which is my God, needs to be very clear. Shame Brene Brown is one of the leading writers and researchers of shame. She says that guilt is feeling upset because you made a mistake, but that shame is feeling that you are a mistake. If you think about it, when you feel shame, you are kind of blaming God. You are thus, and thus isn't good. Why has he made you thus? So it's his fault. It's not trusting God to keep working at and with you. It's assuming he's got nothing much else for you. You feel acutely that you stand accused of Satan, of being unfit to continue living and existing. You've lost sight of the fact that you stand justified by Christ as being slated for eternal life as one of God's children, who he's continuing to perfect. You didn't earn this upgrade program. It doesn't get revoked if you haven't downloaded all the upgrades yet. If you're going to try to let God think and feel what he wants to regarding you and make that be what matters to you rather than what other Christians and your family and other parts of your culture think and feel, you are going to have to deal with your shame. I know I did. Because if you're like me, you've been brainwashed to do shame to yourself in your formative years deeply ingrained training, repeated over and over, until the point at which, if there were no God, and not a single living person left of your culture besides you, you could still be relied upon to make yourself miserable over all that mostly superstitious stuff that made your system feel threatened back in the day. Louisa writes, Oh gosh, this is huge was and is very controlling negatively in my inner thinking life. I believe so many lies, and yet they feel so true. Shame paralyzes me, stops me from living. Whenever I am free of shame, I am still only seconds away from being flooded by it yet again, by the slightest look from a person. 
I have spent years drowning in it and marvel at how others seem to be so free of it. My whole self-perception is governed by it, often. Other than seeing Jesus, being free of sin, the third thing I can't wait for heaven for is to be free permanently from the power, hold, suffocation of shame. Mary says, I had mountains of it then, slightly smaller mountains now. I'm almost into the foothills, I think. Jake grew up in mainstream churches, but still says things that sound very like what my peeps say. Feelings of shame were and are a big part of my mindset, but it's mostly subconscious and just coming to the surface now. I've only come to recognize this as I begin to feel how hard it is to just let God love me. There is shame among other things that I put in the way of him sometimes. It's hard for me to speak to it because it's so new to me at this time. I grew up with so much shame, so much shame, that I thought shame was a key strategy for following God and being happy. Turns out I was as wrong about that as Adam trying to hide behind some bushes so that the Lord who made him wouldn't see him naked. Because that's how shame makes people act. It doesn't make them approach God or the people they've wronged. It doesn't make them try to better things. It makes them want to hide, makes them want to lie and not admit things, makes them want to blame others. Shame is pride disappointed, feeling like one doesn't look as good as one should to others and oneself, and being hurt and disappointed, embarrassed and angry about that wounded pride. That's what I was trying to get over as I moved on from being a church drone. This deeply ingrained pattern of shame. It was the cattle prod used to hurt us and keep us from straying from church normal. It took at most a bit of a glance or a brief word, and we'd soon be shaming ourselves. We punished ourselves daily with the shame stick. We always felt like we deserved to suffer. This despite how boring and empty our lives really were and how petty our sins. When I read The Three Musketeers as a kid, I was struck by how messed up it was that when Aramis, the religious musketeer, who was a failed priest, wanted to get right with God, he started whipping himself, fasting and doing punitive prayers all day long. Must be some weird Catholic thing from centuries past, I thought. I was quite wrong. More recently, seeing videos of the annual Easter self-crucifixions of Christians in the Philippines and the proud flagellants humbly walking bloody back down the streets so everyone could see their piety, I blogged the following. Self-Punishment There is a tradition, mainly in extremist branches of the Roman Catholic Church, but certainly not removed from the weekly routines of recent popes, of self-punishment. Starting out with simple things like sleep deprivation and fasting, and moving up through wearing painful items of clothing, through whipping oneself, all the way to the point of 15 or 20 minute sessions of public self-crucifixion. It's all intended as pious activity, stuff to make God smile fondly. There are videos all over YouTube of Christians, mainly in the Philippines, walking down the streets at Easter, whipping themselves bloody. They get a penitence partner to nick the skin all over their back with a razor blade first so it will bleed more, and being publicly crucified with actual nails after being swabbed with rubbing alcohol first for whatever portion of an hour they choose. The videos they humbly post of themselves being this holy get tons of views, too, and likes. Why punish yourself? The reasoning behind these acts varies. 
some people feel they are choosing to suffer for their own sins and thereby somehow retroactively lightening the load of suffering back through time to Jesus on the cross. They're doing it to give Jesus a break. Others feel like the key thing to understanding and emulating Jesus doesn't involve his ability to listen, to help, to care, to save, and to love, but mostly just the fact that he suffered. That's what they find most helpful about him. They're suffering to feel like they are demonstrating a key characteristic of the Lord. Others feel like doing this keeps them from sinning more somehow. They're doing it to try to control their tendency to sin. Still others feel like willfully suffering encourages God to take their prayers more seriously than he otherwise would. They're doing it to get God to do what they want. All of this can be seen in a less dogmatic way in the yearly routine most Catholics and some Protestants in those churches which maintain this practice go through a sacrificing of something they love to God for Lent, and then often overindulging when at last they can enjoy that thing once again. Chocolate, Facebook, TV, whatever. Something enjoyable. Sacrifice to God, who hates enjoyment, apparently, and loves people who sacrifice it better than people who don't. They're trying to make God happy. When I blogged this, some Lent-observant Christian friends told me that they did it not to make God happy, but to sharpen their willpower, to focus their resolve. They're doing it to focus their wills. This tradition of sacrifice and self-punishment is far older than Roman Catholicism, of course. Innumerable ancient religions involved cutting oneself with knives, fasting, sleep deprivation, ritualistic tattoos, facial branding and scarring, and even the sacrifice of one's own children. This was to do things like ensure a drought stopped and the rain returned, or a battle went their way, or just because. They were doing it as a success strategy. It is very much a part of human nature to try to better things, to redress the indulgences of the past by present sacrifice, like ill-gotten past joys can be paid for by present misery. Self-Punishment in My Own Culture Now, all this dramatic stuff is not the sort of thing that Christians in my faith tradition were likely to do in quite this way. Our kind of Christian didn't even fast, really, for the most part, though many Christians do. But we had our own version of walking down the street, self-humiliated, bleeding publicly on YouTube from our own self-inflicted, pre-nicked whippings. We did a far more private kind of shame and self-loathing, self-hating, seeing as idols anything that made us happy, the spiritual or psychological equivalent of crucifying ourselves for our own sins, just as if we didn't need Jesus or Satan. We became our own accuser, our own enemy, our own nemesis. Wherever we turned, there we were, accusing, saying we didn't deserve kindness or to be happy, and that we deserved to be abandoned and judged and punished. And it didn't really matter to us that God clearly didn't want to do any of this to us himself that he was trying to bless us and teach us about the world, that he sent his son to deal with all of the problematic stuff, and that it's dealt with wholly in a way we can't really add to or help with. Still, we were determined to pay, for grace freely given. 
There was no good word that someone could say to us, no kindness shown, that we couldn't reject or otherwise ruin for ourselves like a high school bully preying on whatever it was that would be valuable to us, shattering our own peace of mind, because we didn't deserve it, because the act of self-bullying was somehow thought to be virtuous and not only worthwhile but necessary. We were trying to do a good thing by bullying ourselves. And there was such fear about ever slacking off in punishing and bullying and shaming ourselves, surely if we foolishly abandoned our shame obligations and the focus on how bad we were and what we'd done, surely what we might then do would certainly outshine our past sins a thousandfold. Surely, if we just lived the lives God gives us daily and enjoyed compliments and kindnesses and whatever blessing God sent, everything would then go entirely to crap? Surely the healthy, proper, safe response to joyful things is shame and distrust, feelings of unworthiness? If we didn't go around shaming ourselves, man, would we sin. We'd sin big. We were endlessly interested in the idea of exactly how and how big we'd sin if only we let go of our salvific shame for a sec. We had a terror of ever ceasing to carry around the great burden of our past missteps and indulgences and our present secret flawed nature. It was like we thought if we didn't carry all of that, it would fall to the street like a stray turd, and someone might call out after us asking, Hey, is that yours? We knew right well that Jesus has asked to be the bearer of our culpability. God has accepted this offer, and we can't both carry it ourselves and also let him bear it for us. But that didn't stop us for a moment. We needed to keep ourselves from sinning using our sinful flesh to do that. Our own cross of rejection. I think we were wrong about all of that. And I think that kind of stuff makes us embrace a bloody, dark, idolatrous, pre-Christian time and puts us in a place where God himself might have trouble making a good difference in our lives without addressing some of it first. I don't think Jesus died so we could shoulder a cross of fear and personal shame about chocolate, lost tempers, wine, and TV and stuff like that. God doesn't have a cross like that to hand you. There's a cross, all right, for us to bear, though. It's handed to us by the same people who wanted Jesus to have one. When we experience rejection of ourselves as an entire person, we have fellowship with him in his sufferings. But we don't have to make anything and nail ourselves to it. People have crosses of rejection and public shame ready for us right now. It's a cross of rejection, shame, and distrust given to us by human religious systems, including evangelical Christianity and atheism alike for believing in tolerance rather than judging, for believing in loving rather than just tolerating, for believing, period, for not being satisfied with how things are, for not wanting to help the system be broken and help hide that it is broken, for not helping punish people who are broken, for where we look for our salvation from all of it. We get mocked and judged and rejected for all of that. And quite contrary to what the cross manufacturers intend, this is the cross our own outward acts of piety get nailed to. They die there. It's the cross where our need to seem pious to others hangs its head and breathes its last. 
we carry this cross down the street as disciples of Jesus, conveyor of that most offensive of all doctrines, the idea that prodigals such as we are nowadays favored sons and daughters, and not through our own wisdom, choices, or efforts, but through his. We bear it, believing that we remain saved from our sin no matter what we do afterward. We carry its weight, believing we're covered as God's children. We know that God blesses who he wants to, rather than it being wages for obedience and duty. This gives us a whole different reason for acting well in our lives, appreciation and affection, rather than terror, shame, and guilt. We are associated as genuine Christians with the troubling scriptural doctrine that we just don't really need human religious figures much. We don't need anyone who's going to help us feel more shame, certainly not as much as they need us to need them, because we have God, and we get along. A pope, a bishop, a priest, has really nothing much to offer us, nothing we can't get ourselves. We have Jesus. We have the Bible. We have the right to daily audiences with God the Father. Even if we don't keep Lent, don't try to follow the Ten Commandments, don't turn everything Jesus said into rules, don't follow a dress code, don't chastise ourselves daily about our past forgiven sins or the weak, twisted, dark bits of our present psyches, don't do purification rituals and don't superstitiously mumble our empty prayers over and over and over and over to God, trying to bind him with magic spells and incantations." If we start embracing his acceptance rather than hiding from him in shame or trying to tangle him in church magic, we start to feel deep down that he's our father. He has good rather than evil intentions toward us. We're his children. Are we scared to open up and let God shine light into the darkest recesses of our hearts? Well, according to the Bible, he's in there right now. It's far too late to try to keep him out. It's far too late to magnanimously invite him in. He's in there, spring cleaning, making it nicer in there, in his aspect as Holy Spirit. Things will be taken from us. Our sacrifices for Christ aren't going to involve the loss of life and health usually. Our sacrifices are going to involve walking alone, misunderstood by Christians who are, near as we can tell, only nominal ones. We will get used to being cut off and cut out, to being a pariah, walking the Circe Lannister shame walk only without benefit of a body double and wig, living outside the social approval, status, and support systems we're supposed to need so badly, to live each day judged and gossiped about by religious folk who don't like how we are living, getting shunned by them, having others warned about us. We carry this cross for Christ. Increasingly, we can carry it with his spirit, knowing what we're doing and why, knowing people suck and that it's not really their fault, that they don't really know any better. The more we show the spirit of Christ, the more we will learn who are the most Pharisee of our brothers and sisters. The more we act like he would have, the more we will get treated as he was by our own modern Pharisees, by people like teenaged me. And then what eventually happens is you can't tell the preachy atheists from the venomous Christian Pharisees. Everyone who has a cause that you're not raising awareness of stands against you and wants to adjust your thinking. 
Eventually, they all just blur into an indecipherable wall of background noise, a boiling symphony of uncomprehending rejection. The ancient roles are waiting, and we have to play his role in a small way. We don't just have to imitate him or imagine what he'd do. We have to actually start showing out his spirit, being Christ rather than just Christians, to people who need him and people who hate what he stands for alike. Allowing ourselves to be blessed. But following Jesus isn't all sacrifice. There is celebration, too. There's rejoicing in heaven over us already. There's good stuff coming our way all the time. Wine to be drank, sunshine to hit our skin, scenery to take in, music to hear, food to enjoy, people to love, children and small animals to share space and joy with. There are no good things that do not come from God. If a thing is good, then it's coming from Him. This is not to say that there aren't ways to overindulge or disrespect, hoard, or otherwise act stupidly and nastily about blessing. But I don't think sacrificing all of it, all of the time, is what God wants when he's trying to bless us. Nor us turning our noses up at, or our back upon opportunities for joy that he extends to us. We live in a society of comfort. We don't know much about sacrifice. Yet somehow, we Christians are also raising kids to not know how to receive blessing graciously, gratefully, and passionately either. Not knowing how to take compliments, not knowing how to embrace pleasure without shame, not knowing how to just walk around without feeling like we need to apologize to anyone who's got a complaint of any kind, not knowing how to enjoy the water, the sun, food, and each other without guilt, suspicion, and fear. That's the best way to recognize the simple fact that the bureaucracy of hell forms the infrastructure of our society, no matter what we fear, dread, lose, and suffer, and it's supposedly all our fault all the time. If that's the infrastructure of your home, your church, your week, then you need to turn to God for something better, to beat that somehow. It's not his intention, not his vision for your life. Jesus died to make you free, to wash away the shame and fear, to free you up to love and be loved. The thing to do is embrace that and rest in it. Or you could shave a tonsure on your scalp and get out the whips and hair shirts, the nails and rubbing alcohol. It's really up to you. Who are you now? Identity is a tough one. People who don't see why we can't just quickly move on from or get over the troubling bits of our culture don't understand that it's not just about changing our stance on whether we think some beliefs are true or not. It's literally about changing who we think we are, about changing who we really are, becoming someone a bit different, very much against the strongly worded opinions of people who were living this way since long before we were born. Darlene says... When I left Brethren, I didn't know who I was or how I was supposed to act. I was so used to being a carbon copy of the environment we grew up in. And if you become a new person, you will certainly have to know who you are now. Because if you move beyond a culture or have problems with parts of it, you will almost certainly be told by that culture exactly who it feels you are. 
often a trouble-causing, malicious figure up to no good, clearly having no common sense, virtue, discernment, or relationship with God. My dad had sat, more or less silently, through one church division, tacitly supporting that 60% of the TWs worldwide be kicked out for not submitting to a couple of the most conservative guys in Ottawa. But when, just over 10 years later, he was being asked to sit silently again while the same guys did it all over again, he told them he did not agree. He was told, our way or the highway, that's a direct quote, and he got up and walked out. He drove home and never went back to the place he'd asked to worship in in his teens in the 1950s. Then, each Sunday morning, he had to stay home. It was that, or go in and ask for an audience with them, to tell them they were right to support all of the punitive kicking out of people who had a problem with all of the kickings out. So he stayed home, got up at meeting time, and just sat in his chair at home, shuffling through some notes elderly ladies had taken of what had gone on during past Sundays when he'd attended and participated, silently turning to each of the hymns in the order in which he and others had given them out, silently turning to each Bible portion in the order in which he and others had read them to everyone, fantasizing like he was still able to go to meeting. So, the Our Way or the Highway power folk announced that he and Mom were out worldwide, and not just in a gay way. And one week in the summer, I'd lost track of it being Sunday mid-morning, and I dropped by. I saw how lost my father was. He didn't know who he was if his week didn't start off with him going out to meeting. He didn't know how to see himself as a Christian without going out to meeting and speaking up and taking part in all of that. The core had been torn out of his week. His relationship with God and his relationship with a group of other Christians were the same thing to him. This meant that his relationship with God was now in the past. They told him they could cut him off from taking communion at the Lord's table and had then announced doing just that as punishment for his refusal to submit to the God-given authority of those guys to scatter the flock. And so, as far as he was concerned, this was all a very real thing. So eventually, he fell in with some other dissenters to the kickings out, and they recreated the same basic meeting structure themselves in Gilbert's living room. These men weren't so much against kicking people out, so much as not fans of the men who'd done it. So they started doing Lord's Day morning meeting themselves, claiming to be the real, original Ghostbusters. They now viewed the group that had kicked them out for not supporting the kickings out as the one we had to walk away from, but which certainly did not kick us out, vice versa, in fact. Soon enough, they had kicked out a pair of the very few who were attending their new-slash-original group, and then, eventually, letters came demanding their support in kicking out a bunch of other people for very dubious reasons. Henry Short had written a pamphlet which listed things about T.W. teachings on the one right place that weren't found in the actual Bible. Nothing more than a, the Bible doesn't have the following things in it thing. For instance, the Bible speaks of putting a wicked person out from among yourselves, not away from the Lord's table. And that was it. Henry Short was kicked out by people who'd left their original brethren group in order to object to it kicking David Gray out for stupid reasons. Of course, a new group formed around Henry Short. I wonder who they'll kick out first. But the locals were supporting the kicking out of Henry Short, 
and my father felt he had to walk away again. But again, he didn't know who he was if he wasn't a meeting guy. None of them did. So then he started doing Lord's Day morning, which is his wife, his sister, and her friend in his sister's kitchen. The friend was eventually seduced away, back to the greater numbers of the original Our Way or the Highway group. So there are just the three of them. The church culture, you see, told us who we were and how we were doing. Our attendance and general conformity were key factors in scoring well. Were we doing okay in life? So long as we were showing up at meeting and weren't in trouble for anything there, then we officially were doing okay in life. Our lives were going according to plan. Some would even say we were clearly following the Lord's will for our lives and that we were an encouragement to everyone. So encouraging to see people going on well for the Lord. One solution to disagreeing with who your church culture announces that you are is to form a new church. New church, new church culture. You can make it say whatever you need it to about anyone. If you start it, you run it. Simple. You can exclude right back. Or better yet, you can invite them knowing they'll refuse to come and you can feel smug about beating them about being open. I have not felt free to use this tactic. I don't believe in it. But one thing I did have to do was learn who I was and not simply believe my culture when it said I was wicked. I certainly didn't decide, oh well, might as well party, I'm wicked and all. That would have been stupid. Don't become the predicted reprobate. If you move beyond or rely less on your culture to tell you who and what you are, you are going to need to know who you are and how you're doing all by yourself. The lie we are told is that if you want to drink the occasional beer and hang around in sports bars and the like, then you are, of course, going to have to become a bad person who is wandering far from the Lord rather than an obedient, Bible-believing meeting person. That living in the fullness of freedom from the obligation to keep the law will result in us living lawlessly. This is like saying that not including a moral at the end of every story one tells little children will invariably result in us telling them immoral stories. Of course, that's not how it actually works. The one isn't paid for with the other like that. The two aren't connected in that direct way. But these things tend to be quite self-fulfilling. If you want to go drink a few beers in a bar, and you've always been taught that the price one pays for this is addiction to alcohol, chances are good that you are going to be charged that price and become addicted to alcohol. You won't even fight it terribly hard, as you will have been taught to expect it. And it's what you chose. More than one brethren person I went to meeting with has done jail time for alcohol-related offenses and had their family lives drowned under a dank, heaving sea of alcoholism. If you want to get the internet for your house, and you've been taught that the price you pay for that is porn addiction, then you are quite possibly going to decide eventually that you are addicted to pornography. Brethren people I went to church with have done jail time for having kitty porn in their computers. And meeting people I went to youth group with are doing life for murder. Others have killed themselves. Tell me again how this stuff isn't serious, and I should forget about it and move on. The world, we were always told, isn't safe. Well, I agree. It's not. And so we were told to stay out of it, 
Well, it's a whole lot worse if you've run off into it eventually with no real experience of it, no skills for dealing with it, and a culture-supported belief that you have to toss the baby out with the bathwater in order to have a life. If you just accept all those wild predictions of lawless depravity and disaster, you kind of make yourself vulnerable to them. And if you do things that you yourself actually believe are stupid or bad, you do damage to yourself, no matter what anyone else thinks or says about any of it. It's bad. Many of my church acquaintances seem to have become exactly what they were told they'd become if they didn't keep their lives tightly locked under church control. And I think there was no reason for that. I think in the church culture, they didn't have Christ in their weekly lives, no matter how locked into church culture and rules and routines and activities they were. And when they left it, they still didn't have him. They just didn't have meeting anymore. I think they were just as lost once they got out as when they were in. It might seem harsh to use the word lost about them and say they didn't have Christ. I'm not really talking about afterlife here. I'm talking about if their lives over the decades seem to have gone in the direction of growth and love and light. But who am I, right? I'm in no position to judge, nor is that the reason I'm writing this book. But by the time people are in jail and mental institutions or are dead, with ruined family lives having hurt everyone around them, I start to feel like maybe I'm just pointing out the obvious. These people are lost as to finding their way in their lives. And it's tough to deal with people like that. Punching them in the face won't make them stop drinking. I have attempted this strategy. Loving them may not be enough to help either. More often, I have attempted this. It can really hurt, and it's never really worked either. Unlike the Book of Mormon, the Bible was not written in North America. It wasn't even written in Europe. It was written far east of here. The thinking in it is far more eastern than we're ready for often. As I understand it, part of the meaning for the yin-yang symbol is that the ideal place to stand in life is with one foot in the changeable, chaotic, uncontrollable, unknown yin, and the other in the static, structured, controlled, known yang. That wisdom and success come from a balance, a combination of opposites. Good and evil, God and Satan, are not equal opposites, of course. But I think there's a lot of that in the Bible. Balance. An example is that we are told to be subtle as serpents, but harmless as doves. Another is that we are told to be angry, but sin not. Yet another is that we are to walk free according to grace, but not use the liberty or the grace as an occasion to sin. The whole love versus light, brethren, overemphasis upon closeness and limits has already been thoroughly beaten to death in this chunky volume. So... If you leave behind a repressive, overly yang culture, you have to find your own balance. If you are raised with both feet on the one side, there is no wisdom in leaping over to put both feet on the other side. So, if you are raised yang, you can't just run amok going as far to the yin side as you can. You need to find a centered, balanced, workable way to live. One foot in opportunity, discovery, inspiration, intuition, and change and the other foot in sense, order, pattern, and routine. You need to create and define both and keep some sort of balance going. If your parents and church had no balance, then you need balance more than you need to upset them or mirror yin to their yang. You don't want to be a slave to bitter shame and other people's ideas about who you are. And you don't want to be a lawless reprobate who can't make his or her week work. You want to be a whole person. And God is both found in and leads one to wholeness and balance. 
On the one hand, he inspires and confounds, mystifies and changes things. On the other, he is also about order, knowledge, wisdom, and what makes sense. Either one can be overemphasized to the detriment of your life. What you'll need. So maybe, like me, you've also been told that if your attendance at church drops off, you are soon going to become a depraved, addicted, selfish piece of crap. Let me be very clear. You don't have to become these bad things just because you're not into the church thing anymore. In fact, it's up to you not to. Now, just as it was then. Relationship with God helps you choose wise and healthy paths far more than adherence to church lifestyle ever could. So pursue that. Accountability to good people around you who notice when you're screwing up is extremely valuable. But if every one of those people is from the same church culture, there starts to be a collective control thing that can get very one-sided and very out of control. You need people, all right, but different kinds of people who aren't part of the same thing and who don't share a group agenda, people who actually know you when you're not at church, people who care and are good people to know. You need to be able to listen to people like that, but also able to say fuck it if they aren't making sense. Sometimes no one gets it but you and God. You may have been trained to expect that, if you leave your culture, you have to give up everything, all family and church and Christian connections. Of course, you do not. In fact, you may suddenly be free to make human connections and have amazing experiences you never would have otherwise had. But keep your act together. Don't pursue freedom by tossing sense out the window. Develop wisdom of your own with God. As I said, I had that overactive conscience keeping me from connecting with people outside my meeting and experiencing the world. It was like a smoke detector that goes off every single time the cat farts. Useless. I had to let it get less inflamed. I had to go gentle on it, without taking it too seriously, but without searing the crap out of it until it was a melted puddle of plastic that didn't work at all. This took a lot of time. I had a conscience that was ringing a four-alarm fire over my renting footloose, right where worldly people could see me paying my buck for it in a store with big glass windows people could see into from the street. My conscience could just barely handle renting footloose, It certainly didn't allow me to dance. It needed to get toned down. I had allergies to normal activities, due to having only recently emerged from that bubble I was raised in. Jake, reminiscing back to his early teen years from the seasoned vantage point of his late teen years, says, I partied and developed a weed habit, got addicted to pornography and swore a lot, watched bad movies, listened to bad music, and all the rest. But when I broke some of these rules, I came to see a side of things that was never given room by the religious fear. I began to see people who only smoke weed together, who still love each other, and who weren't Satanists who were out to kill everyone. They were still my close friends and never meant to harm anyone. I began to see people who got drunk on the weekends because they enjoyed spending time with friends, not because they were Satanist alcoholics. That stuff is never spoken of in church, and it grew a lot of questions within me. What was so crazy was the pressure that I was never supposed to question any of it. Jake is talking about the need for balance in terms of attitude. The unbalanced attitude he'd been raised with, only bad, hateful, nasty, probably Satan-worshipping people would ever smoke weed and get drunk, meant that when he kind of wanted to try those things, his expectations were according to how he'd been trained. And he didn't decide whether or not to try these things with balanced thinking. He was pretty much willing to be a bad, hateful, nasty person to try them. 
he thought maybe that was the price for trying getting drunk. Because the only thing that had been keeping him from trying them before that was kind of a lie. It certainly was an unbalanced, overstated, ignorant view anyway. So it stopped working when he met people who showed up the lack of balanced honesty in it. As a child, Jake had remained fastened way over to the side of disdainful, fearful piety, and when that let go in his early teens, he swung just as far over the other way. Every parent I've spoken to who homeschools her kids claims to be raising said tykes with more of a balanced worldview than they would ever have gained from the mix of the 20 or so teachers who would touch their development by the time they graduated high school. This makes me wonder how balanced she and her views really are, because she's putting all of her eggs or children in that one basket, trusting she won't drop it. This happens so often when parents overstate and speak without wisdom and knowledge about the things they want to keep their kids out of. Balance means being able to have a foot on each side of an issue. It means not needing to lie or play us-versus-them games. It means being able to tell the truth. It means not cheating to try to win in the game of good, not doing evil that good may come. As for me... I didn't want to become an alcoholic or get addicted to pornography or anything to find freedom when I was in my 20s. So I took it easy. I waited for my inflamed, angry conscience to shrink slightly while listening to it with common sense and seeing what I really believed, as opposed to what I'd merely been brainwashed to superstitiously fear. I've been taught that if I had a drink, I would almost certainly become an alcoholic. Well, when I eventually had a drink, I didn't see the appeal in getting drunk. And at 21, it seemed far too late to get drunk in the manner of a typical Canadian 12-year-old. All the puking, for one thing, genitals drawn on my face with Sharpie, for another. So I just didn't. And then I was told at my church that, all right, maybe I wasn't an alcoholic, but I had to be sensitive to others and not drink, as it might lead some other theoretical person into becoming an alcoholic. How, then, was freedom of any kind possible? All this didn't seem like a sensible way to try to connect to the young. I know a lot of parents of teens who try to keep the devil out of their teen by being very controlling, by emphasizing rules. I've seen those kids grow up and kind of move on from the church Christianity of their parents into lives of contented atheism. Often, they respect their parents and the commitment required to live a life of rules. Often, they feel the rules are good, but things they themselves have no intention of keeping. I think the thing that was missing with all of those people was their parents were working more to keep the devil out of the child with rules than to get any Christ into them with love they could recognize as love. Christian love wasn't something the kids felt strongly enough for it to tempt them to stay. They grew up and experienced church culture, the Bible, and Christianity as being nothing other than a bunch of limits and rules. And they live secular lives now, without feeling like they're missing any love they used to enjoy among us. They felt the rules, but not love. They didn't know Christ, but only what Dallas Willard calls consumer Christianity. They're listening to different tunes now, Sunday mornings. I saw a documentary about how Amish kids, under such strict lifestyle and cultural constraints from birth get a year in their teens to bust out. They often save up all their farming money for years, then buy a sports car, bling, Oakleys, techno CDs, and Euro trash clothes, and spend that year drunk driving at high speeds to movie theaters and raves on Molly. Often, once they've done this for the year, they sell the car and return to Amish life for swearing soccer shirts and neck chains forever, having seen how evil they are 
how not them that whole lifestyle ultimately was in the long term. After all, they want to have Amish kids of their own and raise them right and teach them how excessive and trashy and unhealthy life outside their culture clearly is. You don't need to bust out in such a dramatic way. Probably shouldn't. If you're finding your way to God and you're building a life that makes sense, you will need baby steps, not melodramatic hedonism. So take it easy. Do it with him. If you try to flee God while you're fleeing your indoctrination, you just might repeatedly wind up face down, covered in puke somewhere as predicted, no further away from any of what you're fleeing, because you carry that stuff imprinted on your heart. It takes a while to grow beyond it. There may be times when you will look at yourself and wonder in confusion and despair who you are now. In those times, remind yourself of who you are by demonstrating virtue, not piety, virtue. Help someone. Do something you're good at. Make something better. If you are a person who is kind, who sings, who writes poetry, who paints, who helps little kids learn to skate or whatever, do a bit of that to remind yourself that there is virtue in you planted there by God himself. And now it's time for it to grow tall and strong. Born screaming into a new person. It was a guy named Ryan, someone I used to teach, who first linked me to an odd, wandery lecture by a University of Toronto professor named Jordan B. Peterson. I started checking out videos of his lectures online. At first, I found his high, scratchy voice and rural Albertan accent pretty amusing. But Peterson makes me think. He looks a lot at commonality, stuff that's the same over centuries and across cultural divides things that all animals and human beings have in common in terms of stages of development, instinctual responses to millennia of danger situations, and so on. So he points to the fact that dominance hierarchies, pecking orders with status games and signifiers like the ones that sprang up in our brethren culture, are deeply ingrained in not only human brain development in patriarchal Western society, but in all animals, since pretty much forever. We think in terms of who is the most powerful, influential, or otherwise important. We just do. We can't, Peterson doesn't feel, simply decide to be less focused on status. He thinks our brain is literally wired to navigate those concerns, has built-in response circuits which read the situation in those terms. Bad news for people complaining about our patriarchal status-based society, he says. You can't make it less status-focused because it's been like that for millennia, and it's because of the physical construction of our brains. It's part of how we choose mates and raise children. That's too ancient and deep to fix with a video wristband or awareness campaign. You can change how you engage in status-seeking, though. You can broaden who can contend for it and how it is measured and acquired. The game stays, but maybe more people can play, and there are a few new rules or pieces of equipment. This is also bad news for those of us who once had acceptance and status in the hierarchy of our church culture and have now lost or sacrificed it. Hard for us to feel good about ourselves when we have lost the game we grew up thinking was all there was to human existence. Time for new games. Got to get some. Stat. You may turn your back on how you used to live, but you can't just stop striving to succeed at anything altogether. You need a new arena, a new set of goals. That's what's required. When Jesus taught about the kingdom, he didn't teach about a time when there would no longer be status hierarchies. He just said that the pyramid was going to get flipped back to the right side up. 
Fighting Lobsters. About striving and the value of learning from failure, Peterson points to the fact that male lobsters, with such simple brains that crustaceans are compared to humans barely sentient, continually fight each other to occupy the top of the status pyramid. He says that all creatures, including humans, predictably, statistically tend to die from the bottom of such status pyramids upward. The lobster, or CFO, or five-star general at the top, is, generally, the least likely to die on any given day, even though everyone's fighting for his position. A very good reason to want that position. Peterson cites research relating to how, when a male lobster loses a status fight, he crawls into a hole and sulks until he once again is ready to fight. He won't budge until he once again believes or feels he is ready to win. Peterson says that while a male lobster is sulking, he will withdraw from any fights to which he is challenged and won't even respond if poked with a stick except to hide deeper in his hole. But if a male lobster who has lost a fight is given antidepressants, serotonin uptake disruptors primarily, after losing, he will instantly fight and pick fights without needing to sulk at all, even though he's just lost. It's like you can disrupt his brain's natural process of recognizing and dealing with failure altogether. The brain can no longer even interpret failure as failure, nor accept that the experience of failure is telling him that more failure is likely in future, short of some kind of new tactic or other change. The drugged-up lobster fights on and continues to lose and feels fine about it and keeps fighting. He never learns those new tactics because he's okay with what's happening. Peterson uses this research to indicate the universality of the human experience of handling, bouncing back from, setbacks that adversely affect one's status. It has a rhythm, the attempt, the failure, the retreat and re-evaluation, and then the possible future attempt. Lobsters do it. We do it. We have always done it. With something so universal and so ancient, Peterson argues, we can't simply stop thinking that way or stop letting it affect us without artificially altering how our brain works. Peterson points out that ancient people used drugs not to daily shut out the fear and chaos, but to give themselves artificially intense and accelerated, often one-time experiences of just those very things. There is a reason, Peterson argues, why mushrooms in fairy tale drawings so frequently have exactly the same red color with the same white dots as the very strain of hallucinogenic mushrooms commonly used by the ancient shamans to bring on visions in order to confront the troubling stuff they felt more sane people were hiding from and unable to gaze directly upon. Maybe this is why Jesus teaches not of stopping the status game, but of making the first last and the last first flipping the thing right side up again, changing how status is gained, but maintaining the status hierarchy. Just as if the game, as it is played on Earth, rewards the wrong characteristics and results in the wrong people ending up holding power, the ones who can be least trusted with power, the ones who want it most and for all the wrong reasons. It's like our human systems are built upside down on purpose to change what skills it takes to climb up in status. It's not too soon to start training and then competing in light of what the new refing and scoring rules will do to the game in future. God's certainly going to turn it on its head. It's not too early to get with that program. People who failed to be normal. Some of us were made to be different, it seems. To see or be willing to look at more, more deeply. Or maybe just differently. 
Some people feel everything more deeply than most people do. The two often go hand in hand. Peterson thinks that ancient alchemists, artists, shamans, scientists, and religious theologians were all trying to discover important things about the world, and that the relatively recent decision to view the whole world in terms of matter and energy only, and to dismiss all other considerations, no matter how vital our need to understand them may be, is dangerous and irresponsible. So Peterson thinks that when people get into a real struggle as to their mental health, as to their psychological and spiritual development, that there are things going on that we just really don't know anything about. Things that ancient drawings and stories and rituals and mushrooms were attempts to engage with, explore, and help. Things that are not really permanently helped by trying to drug the person in order to remove their urge, their ability to try to deal with all that stuff. What stuff? Stuff people were telling them wasn't real, or certainly not important. Stuff they dream about. Stuff people tell them to just forget about. Those things that were no doubt made instantly hellish by giving the person hallucinogens to allow that chaos to flood in uncontrollably in an attempt to deal with it all once and for all. We still give unusual people drugs, Jordan Peterson says, but opposite ones with the opposite intent. We prescribe drugs intended to permanently forestall epiphany rather than arrive at it, to keep the lessons away by taking the pressure off. I was interested in the various cultures' shared observations about wise men, prophets, or shamans. Now, the descriptions of what they went through, wandering off into the forest a lot, not eating, hearing voices, seeing things, engaging in self-harm, oddities and sleeping habits, odd connections to geography and nature, and eventually coming back into society hugely changed, as if they'd become a whole different person, sounded to me like A. Biblical stories of demon possession, B modern stories of schizophrenia or psychotic breaks, and C, biblical stories of all people who interacted with God in any direct way, including Jesus himself going off into the wilderness. The view seems to be, fairly universally, that human communities are predominantly made up of people who are able to accept what their society chooses to deal with and not worry about the things it does not. Most people can successfully avoid thinking about the mysterious, the unsolvable, the stuff that the society itself really doesn't seem to have sorted out. Societies are not perfect, and they focus only upon a few things and recommend people not engage in any way with all the other things. Cultures decide what is known and under control, and they focus upon that and carefully avoid looking at what they decide isn't known and isn't even predictable makes their job a whole lot easier. They have their members focus upon what can be explained and planned for, what is handled, what can be kept orderly and labeled. Because what isn't known is chaos, unpredictable. You can't plan for it. So the stories are clear. Stay out of the woods. Don't go outside at night. Don't sail beyond our cove. Don't read that book. Peterson mentions Sleeping Beauty and how because the infant's family will not deal with the fairy or the witch Maleficent, and because she isn't included in the infant's preparation for life, her revenge is that she will be part of the young princess's life in a very big way. By the end of the story, Maleficent's a dragon. But like her parents, the princess will be asleep, not dealing with anything. Certainly not with things like dragons, which originally wanted nothing more than to be included. But some unusual people, Peterson claims, cannot, or purposely do not, 
shield themselves from the chaos that tends to happen. And they can't stay asleep or ignore it. They find they have to engage with it instead. Because there always seem to be, and always have been, those people. People who can't escape dealing with everything else, with the stuff that the society can't quite explain. They can't look away from it. They see things others want to deny the existence of, or to forbid discussion about. They hear what's going on behind conversations. They hear what's carefully never being said. These are people who have urges and thoughts that aren't what everyone's expecting, and which their community can't deal with. People who seem destined to become lunatics or wise men and women, experts, artists, prophets, visionaries. I'm a fan of music, the kind made by bands with more than one composer often. And what I see over and over again, from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to Pink Floyd to Black Sabbath to The Who to Blue Rodeo and any number of others, is a story of a sensible, talented, reliable, competent guy finding himself in a band, joined at the hip with an impossible-to-work-with, random, chaotic, fiery, clueless, but inspired guy. One yin guy, one yang guy. And over and over, the bands break up due to the unsurprising instability of such a partnership. The two men go their separate ways professionally, only for something interesting to soon become obvious. Without that odd mix of stability and chaos smashing together, neither one really thrives on his or her own. You need sweet and spicy, bitter coffee or cocoa with sugar in it. Their solo work lacks those dramatic fireworks that people were enjoying. Their ability to somehow bridge the gap between them had been audible on the songs. It was what people were into. There are marriages like that, too. Of course, some people just have stuff severely wrong with their brains and the chemicals flowing in and out of them, and that's very sad. But other people have brains that are more complicated or differently constructed than the regular folk. They quickly demonstrate special needs, special interests, special weaknesses, and special strengths. And all too often, there is pressure that the latter, more aware people, get shut up, locked away, and or medicated with the former, just mentally ill folks. Being Reborn into Light For those kinds of people who fail to fit, there's obviously a dealing process they will need to get through a readjusting of their expectations and orientation to life. Now, a society might even have a special system in place to help people like them, a support group of others who have gone through the tough time that invariably arrives for people like that when they're first trying to live as functioning adults. In ancient times, they would have either elevated that person to some special position of wise counsel or just cast such people away, burnt them at the stake, marked them and warned against them, thrown them off a mountain, or chased them out of the region. Nowadays, we're more likely to medicate them to make their brains stop wrestling with these matters. From Hercules and Beowulf through The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings to Harry Potter, we can trace an unbroken lineage of heroic stories which clearly goes back even farther than we can trace. Joseph Campbell called it the hero cycle, but people in that cycle don't feel like and don't always end up acting like heroes. These are stories of someone who, like Jonah, has an insight, a message, or a role he or she absolutely must fulfill. There's no one else. He or she is uniquely made for that one job. But doing that job, playing that role, isn't something for normal people. 
and he or she invariably tries to be normal, tries to fit in, tries to hide, tries to deny knowing the Christ, tries to run away, tries not to use the ring, not cause magic, not learn the ways of the Force and get involved with the rebellion against the Empire, not hear what the animals say, not hear the voice of the Lord outlining his dissatisfaction with Nineveh, not see the burning bush, or whatever. In many of these hero stories, the hero usually fails to avoid the weirdness and often then starts really losing it and flees his or her destiny, flees who he or she is, and ends up like Jonah or Pinocchio in the belly of a monster, dragon, fish, or cave, all alone in the eye of chaos while the maelstrom rages outside, a place where everything one has learned, everything one does out of habit, everything one was prepared for and expects, attempting to follow one's daily routine suddenly doesn't work, has completely random and chaotic, unpredictable effects. The thing that Frodo and his party have to do in the Fellowship of the Ring that is probably the most scary for them is they have to not only leave the old familiar hobbit towns behind, but actually start traveling across untamed wilderness, leaving all roads entirely or taking ancient forgotten ones. Through forests, swamps, mountains, or whatever, they inevitably end up off the path eventually. And things are out there where no well-trodden path goes. Ancient things, dragons, giants, spiders, odd people, wisdom, and dangers. If he or she can survive, can hold it together, he or she does it, ironically, by symbolically dying in terms of ceasing to be merely that person who couldn't deal and is born again, a new person who just might be able to deal with more, just might grow to be more. In shamanic tradition, the symbology was that you would die, having your flesh stripped down to the bone, and then them dry bones would be resurrected, would grow new flesh, and be more suited to dealing with what had destroyed the previous person so badly. Damn bones, damn bones, damn dry bones, damn bones, damn bones, damn dry bones, damn bones, damn bones, damn dry bones, and hear the word of the Lord. Rebirth, like God dealing with Israel, like the image of the seed falling into the ground and dying and sprouting into a new living form. Peterson thinks, in terms of biological adaptation, of a given species of animal and how ones with traits that aren't working die off and ones with special traits that help continue, and connects an animal species adapting to an individual person adapting. Some traits will be dying off because they don't work for you, and other traits will be continuing on, or springing up in a different form as adaptations to external dangers and needs. In most ways, really, the reborn person in the hero story has become someone who has somehow found a way to come to terms with the chaos, with having a special role, despite not being able to do normal, having some idea about and intentions toward doing something else. The hero doesn't learn that the world isn't, after all, chaotic and scary. The hero learns that it is indeed chaotic and scary. The hero learns to become more than he or she was and to deal with the world as it really is. Because in the real world, there be dragons, and they will eat your sanity. Addictions will burn you and take your gold. Stress eats you and sucks the youth out of you. You start dying faster, literally. These mythic stories resonate because all of us see ourselves in those fictional struggles. They feel real. They inspire us to actually succeed in regular life. 
These stories resonate most strongly with people who become paraplegics, who kick addictions, who have some kind of emotional breakdown, who leave their birth culture and who remake themselves or are remade into people who can deal. Orthodox Jews who've moved to Ohio and gone native, lesbian Sikhs, Muslims who write books critical of Islam and survive fatwas, heroin addicts who open treatment centers, amputees who train for wheelchair basketball teams and become captain, war veterans who try to express the horrors of needless, honorless battle and death in poetry or painting, or in the creation of the battles of Middle-earth or of Narnia. The one thing all these stories have in common is that it's absolute chaotic, terrifying, unprecedented hell while in the belly of the monster trying to work it all out. You can't see in there, can't breathe. Everything has changed. Nothing works anymore. So it's utter madness while learning that one's life is going to be different now, while contemplating that one is going to be born again and in many ways live a new life. And no one's going to really understand. What one might need is simply to talk to others who've been through the closest one can find to pretty much sort of the same kind of thing, to be less alone, to be not the only one. And result? And then, if one survives all of it, a curious role. People come to seek one out as to trouble that their community doesn't seem able to deal with, but one is forever outside the village. Maybe documenting it, looking in on it, celebrating and also seeing the flaws in it. Trying to be a catcher in the rye for children who wander outside it and don't know what to do, who aren't ready for what dangers lie out there. A true prophet, shaman, wise woman, seer, journalist or scholar is always outside looking in, outside where one simply isn't supposed to go, one foot in societal order and the other in the chaos outside on the edge, where visitors will only come by out of desperation because society on autopilot doesn't seem to be handling something unknown that is starting to get downright chaotic sounding, when the tides of chaos seem to be up past one's chest. When you personally saw a sheep get roasted and eaten by a dragon, but the king says there's no such thing as dragons or pedophiles. But if you've been in the belly or the cave of the dragon you know they exist. Then people like you become uniquely important, because maybe the world is chaotic and scary, especially in certain times and places, and maybe society doesn't always work as well as one would hope, not every day, for every person. Maybe it's actually an upside-down power hierarchy that won't work until God flips it back around. <laughs> 